Sermons for the Feasts of the Year by the Venerable Curé of Ars, Jean-Baptiste Marie Vianney. First printed in 1901. Nelabstat Remigius Lafort, Imprimatur Michael Augustine. The Sermon for the Feast of All Saints. I beseech thee, my son, look upon heaven. Today, my dear Christians, is a day on which, more than any other, the faithful look up to heaven and reflect how supremely happy the saints are who enjoy the bliss of heaven at the throne of God. A day on which, by meditating on the never-ending happiness of the saints, an ardent longing is stirred in our hearts that we may one day take part in this happiness. But to reach this happiness, we must not be satisfied with meditation alone. We must consider the way of living of the saints upon earth and ask the question, how did they obtain their blissful state in heaven? We will consider in turn the state of the saints on earth and the state of the saints in heaven. May the Lord bless our meditation. The state of the saints on earth, my dear Christians, was neither pleasant, nor easy, nor sweet, as the children of this world desire it or try to make it. No, theirs was a lot both hard and difficult. They trod the paths which their Savior himself had pointed out to them in the words, So likewise every one of you that doth not renounce all that he possesseth cannot be my disciple. They followed the path on which Jesus Christ had promised them crosses and tribulations with these words, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. They followed the path which Jesus calls a narrow way, with the words, How narrow is the gate, and straight the way that leadeth to life. They followed in the service of God a threefold hard path, namely, the path of renunciation. They renounced all worldly treasures and goods. They often gave all that they possessed to the poor, and then they themselves led a life of poverty. They wanted to be the disciples of Jesus, who in this world had nowhere to lay his head. They renounced all honors, all the dignities of man. Many of them who came of princely and royal families renounced their title to the princely or royal throne, which would have given them in the eyes of the world the highest honors. And they lived unnoticed by the world a life of the greatest humility and retirement, bearing in mind the words of Jesus, He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. They renounced all the pleasures and delights of the world, for they knew that they draw the heart from God and defile the soul with sin and they sought only their joy in God by leading a holy life in his service, through which they said in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, and my soul shall be joyful in my God. And by all this renunciation they felt in their souls the highest possible happiness. In them was the word of the psalmist fulfilled. Blessed is the man who hath not had regard to vanities. Dear Christians, we all have today the desire, yes, even the ardent longing, to enjoy one day with the saints in heaven 
their glory, and their happiness. But let us consider well that the Christian whose thoughts and actions are only directed toward transitory treasures, honors, and pleasures are not on the path where the joys of heaven are found. Christians must not desire what is earthly, but what is heavenly, not what is false, but what is true, not what is temporary and fleeting, but what is eternal and never-ending. Therefore, our hearts must not be set upon the treasures, honors, and pleasures of this world, so that we may not miss the end for which we were created, heaven. For what doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his own soul? Our Savior calls to us Christians and exhorts us to strive after the happiness of heaven with these words, Seek first the kingdom of God. The fool, says St. Ambrose, holds with them who are of the world. The wise man prefers the eternal glory of heaven. The saints of heaven, I will say further, chose to reach heaven by way of mortification. The saints got to heaven by their virtues. Virtue and sin cannot dwell together in the soul. So that virtue might grow and strengthen, the saints uprooted the wicked propensity to sin in their flesh by practicing mortification. They considered it the object of their lives daily to mortify the desires of the flesh through the spirit, to overcome them, to struggle against them, and to uproot them entirely. That was, as one of the saints said, their work and their struggle. For that reason they fasted strictly, only tasted the poorest kind of food, so as to give to their bodies only strength absolutely necessary. Saint Macarius, to mortify himself, for seven long years ate only raw herbs and vegetables moistened in water. We know that many of the holy hermits lived on roots and herbs. Besides this strict fasting, they practiced mortification by chastising and scourging their bodies. They wore hair shirts and coarse garments of penance next to the skin, scourged their bodies with heavy cords, and whipped themselves till the blood came. At night they did not but most often on the hard ground, and only for a few hours to rest from their labors. We read in the life of St. Casimir, a Polish prince, that he wore a hair shirt in the midst of the gay pleasures and frivolities of the court. Of St. Louis, King of France, that he never left off his hair shirt. Of the pious Philip II of Spain, that on his dying bed he gave his own son, Philip, a scourge covered with blood with these words, Keep this scourge which has so often been stained with my blood. You see, dear Christians, this is how the saints mortified themselves. They crucified their bodies inclined to sin, rooted out the cause of sin, so as to overcome all the temptations of the wicked one. What would some of the delicate children of the world say to this, those who never do the least harm to their worldliness, nor fast, nor deny their bodies anything, and therefore in time of temptation they are exposed to sin? Do they not think that what the saints did was a great deal too hard? That they did unnecessary things which God did not require of them? If God does not require such a harsh life of penance, still, 
Our Savior's words are there when he says, The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. Lastly, the saints in heaven chose, so as to reach heaven, the way of the cross and suffering. They understood those words of Jesus, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For this reason they endured patiently the dungeon and fetters, the agonies of the stake and the scaffold, allowed themselves to be torn asunder by wild beasts, and like their Lord and Master, be bound to the cross, remembering the words of St. Paul, If we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. That is why they bore all sufferings, not only with the greatest patience, but also gladly and with joy. As St. Paul said of himself, I am filled with comfort, I exceedingly abound with joy in all our tribulation. So could these saints say, Never in my life, cried out St. Dorothy in the midst of her martyrdom, have I experienced such joy. And St. Andrew saluted the cross on which he was nailed with these words, O thou cherished and ardently longed for cross, thou bringest me happiness, therefore I approach thee with joy. The saints, besides bearing with the greatest joy every pain which God sent them, even prayed to God when they were free from suffering that he would not send them pleasures but sufferings. St. Teresa's lifelong desire was to suffer or to die. St. Francis Xavier had such a great desire to suffer for Christ that once, when he was filled with consolation and happiness, he cried out, It is enough, O Lord, it is enough. While on the other hand, when tribulation and suffering beset him, he cried, Still more, O Lord, still more. He was often heard to say these words, O Lord, Take not this cross away from me, or if so, then give me in its place a heavier one. My dear Christians, are we not astonished at what the saints have suffered, at the patience which they exhibited in all this suffering, at the longing which they showed for crosses and sufferings? And we, we complain when we have to suffer a little. We bear with impatience the slightest adversity sent to us from God. Let us remember that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God, and let us bear the little suffering which God sends us with patience and submission, so that we may by this, like the saints, obtain the everlasting joys of heaven. So as to encourage us, let us consider what reward the saints have obtained in heaven for their hard and difficult lot while on this earth. My dear Christians, the saints of God have undertaken and borne great things while on earth, and great things will God give them for all eternity, namely heaven. They renounced everything in this world. They can, therefore, according to God's own promises, expect great things in the other world. They mortified themselves on earth, and therefore they can enjoy themselves for all eternity. And what are the joys which they've received from the giver of all good gifts? I answer, joy without pain. Whenever man has any happiness, the pain is not far off. If we enjoy a day of festivity, 
it is soon followed by a day of suffering. If we enjoy good health, it is soon followed by indisposition or probably sickness. Here below, our happiness is never perfect. It never lasts long. It is never enduring. But what is the joy of the saints in heaven? Unchangeable and undisturbed joy and gladness, says the Holy Ghost through the prophet Isaiah. They shall obtain, sorrow and mourning shall flee away, and God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. So we read in the Apocalypse of St. John, and death shall be no more, nor mourning, nor crying, nor sorrow shall be any more. O true life, O eternal life, O life of never-ending happiness, there is joy without pain, rest without work, honor without shame, riches without loss, health without sickness, abundance without want, life without death, happiness without suffering. St. Augustine says it is easier to say what is not in heaven than what is in heaven. There is found no death, no mourning, no weariness, no weakness, no hunger, no thirst, no heat, no sickness, no infirmity, no sadness, no melancholy. Now these things are not there. Do you wish to know what is there? There is an everlasting home where youth never grows old, where love never grows cold, where beauty never fades, where pleasure never ceases. For this reason, the angels are portrayed as beautiful, youthful figures, although they've been created for over 6,000 years. There nothing decays, nothing loses its strength and beauty. These joys without suffering are then unspeakable, great joys. Oh, how great, says the psalmist David, is the multitude of thy sweetness, O Lord, which thou hast hidden for them that fear thee. And he himself gives this answer. They, the saints, shall be inebriated with the plenty of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the torrent of thy pleasure. For with thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light we shall see light. For better is one day in thy courts above thousands. And what reward our blessed Lord has himself promised his servants in heaven with these words, Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is very great in heaven. And what was the joy of St. Paul when he was deemed worthy to look into the third heaven? He's not able to describe it. Therefore he falters the words, The eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man, what things God hath prepared for them that love him. The holy fathers of the church have often taken pains to try to express the sweetness and pleasantness of heavenly joys, but they were not able, as the great thinker St. Augustine himself says, to describe these things as they really are, only in a certain way to feel them. So great, says St. Augustine, comparingly, is the glory of heavenly bliss, that man, if he had only spent a single day there, would give years of bliss and pleasures of this life for it. The reward of the saints in heaven, writes St. Bernard, is so great that man cannot measure it, so rich that man cannot give it utterance, and so precious 
that man cannot price it. And therefore, to give us an idea of the joys of heaven, he breaks out in these words, O joy above all joys, joy that overreachest every joy, and out of thee there is no joy. Place, writes a great theologian, all the many great happinesses which the world has together, the happiness to possess all earthly treasures, the happiness of all power and honors, all the joys and pleasures of a worldly life. Multiply these happinesses a hundred, a thousand, a million times. Multiply them as much and as often as you can, and they are not to be compared with the never-ending joys of heaven. Compare, as in Holy Scripture, the joys of heaven to a magnificent feast, a brilliant, joyous feast, and you are still immeasurably short of the truth. As here below, trouble and suffering, so there above the elect enjoy bliss and joy on all sides, bliss and joy in their glorified bodies, bliss and joy in the beauty and the glory of the heavenly Jerusalem which they inhabit, bliss and joy in Jesus their Savior and their King, whose divine gracious countenance they love to look upon, bliss and joy in Mary, their mother and their queen, whose unutterable beauty delights them, bliss and joy at the exalted thrones which they themselves occupy, and at the glorious crown which adorns their heads, bliss and joy at the hymns of praise sung by the choirs of heaven, bliss and joy at the sight of the glory of their triumphant brethren. Truly, the prophet is right when he says, With the stream of thy glory, O Lord, wilt thou drown them. Lastly, the joys of heaven are everlasting. The soul of man is immortal and everlasting, and eternal is the reward for the souls of the just. From the kingdom of God, the Son in heaven, the angel said to Mary, And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Our divine Savior himself says of the reward of the just, but the just into life everlasting. When Christ spoke to his disciples of his return to the Father, he said also to console them, So also you now indeed have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man shall take from you. That is to say, it shall last forever. And lastly, St. Paul writes, For our present tribulation, which is momentary and light, worketh for us above measure exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. The eternal joy of heaven. What a glorious reward for the saints for their short renunciation of earthly things, for a short struggle with sin, for a short suffering borne with patience. A short time, says St. Augustine, does work in this world last. Eternal is the rest in heaven. Short is the pain, eternal the glory. Short is the suffering, without end the joy. Therefore he sighed for this eternal life and calls out to God, O source of life, when shall I enter into thy joys, from which no more will be kept away? O true, sweet, and pleasant life, O glorious life without end! There is the greatest certainty, the most sure rest, the most restful happiness, the most joyful sweetness, the sweetest eternity and eternal happiness. 
And how long have the saints enjoyed this heavenly happiness? For many decades, many hundreds of years. And how much of eternity has passed for them already? Not a moment. And how much longer will they enjoy the happiness of heaven? Centuries? No, forever. Or thousands of years? No, forever. Or millions of years? No, forever. Or for as many years as there are grains of sand on the earth or drops of water in the ocean? No, much longer. Much longer. Forever. Oh, you saints in heaven, how inexpressibly happy are you. Now, my dear Christians, what are we going to do after the contemplation of the happiness of the saints in heaven? We all wish to cry out with St. Aloysius, we want to go to heaven. We want to go to heaven. And so that we may reach heaven, we must place all our thought there and not in this transitory world. As St. Sempheronius was led to the place of martyrdom, his pious mother, who followed him to give him encouragement to bear his triumph steadfastly, repeated these words over and over again. My child, my child, think of everlasting life. Dear Christians, when it seems hard for you to renounce the world, to fight against sin, to return to God after sinning, to lead a Christian life, and steadfastly walk in the paths of virtue, when trials frighten you, which no one is without, then think of the eternal reward which awaits you in heaven. Consider that for a little trouble you'll receive a great reward, for an easy victory a good, and for a momentary trouble an everlasting reward. Undertake, therefore, this light, this little, this short trouble, which the way of virtue requires, and you will receive in return a good, a great, and an everlasting reward in heaven. Amen. The Sermon from the Curie of Ours for All Souls Day It is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that they may be loosed from sin. Filled with holy joy, the church looked up yesterday to those sublime regions where the saints of heaven, without number, rejoice around the throne of God, and in her gladness of heart, clad in festive garb, she let songs of praise resound in honor of those who, after having ended their life in happiness, have obtained the crown of joy of eternal life. Tell me, my dear friends, why did the church, our mother, rejoice yesterday? Why did she clothe herself in festive garments? Why did she join in joyous song as if she had a part in the eternal happiness of the blessed? But do not ask, my friends, the church, the mother of all Christians, the mother of all those who gained in her bosom that inexpressible bliss of heaven, rejoiced with perfect right that so many millions of her dear children obtained the crown of glory for their faithfulness and are happy and blessed for all eternity. She rejoiced as a mother rejoices when she finds that the greatest happiness has fallen to the lot of her children. But today her joy has suddenly changed into sorrow. Her joyful songs are silenced. She sounds her lamentations in doleful chants. No longer is she attired in festive garments. Her vestments are those of mourning. Oh, do not ask why. The Church, the mother of all Christians today, 
turns away her eyes from those of her children who exult in the realms above in the joys of heaven and looks upon her other children who are still detained in that abode of suffering where they are purified for their sojourn to heaven. And because she loves these no less than those others and longs to see them partake of that divine happiness, therefore she laments and prays. Lord, O merciful God, lead these souls also to that abode of eternal happiness which thou hast deigned to grant to so many millions of thy children. It is through us, my dear friends, it is from our lips that the Holy Church sends forth these utterances. It is from our tongues that her prayers to the throne of mercy are addressed. This is the reason why she sends us today to the cemetery, that we may, over the graves of our parents and deceased relatives, friends, and Christian comrades, invoke God's mercy for their souls, and entreat with sorrowful heart their deliverance from that purifying fire in which they have to atone for all the sins which have not been expiated by them in this world. And this is why she holds before us today that eternal truth of our faith, that by means of our prayers we may come to the rescue of these suffering souls. Oh, how mindful our holy church is that she may not forget any of her children and ever longs to see every one of them happy and blessed. And you do right, my dear friends, when rejecting that unbelief which is called evangelical truth, that unbelief which does not want to know anything of a purgatory in the world to come and of the efficacy of the prayers for the dead, if you, I say, true to your faith in the Holy Catholic Church, come together here on this day, the feast day of the poor souls, and gather round the altar of the Almighty and through the most holy sacrifice of the Mass, offered by one of your brethren, and through your own most fervent prayers, come to the rescue of those poor souls. This, your faith, is well-founded. Therefore, fulfill as often as you can these holy acts of charity. And so that you may be encouraged to practice them more and more, I will prove to you today the truth of our faith, and assert that firstly, there is a purgatory in the world beyond and that secondly, we may help the poor souls to their deliverance from said purgatory. Listen then. St. John the Apostle says in the Apocalypse, There shall not enter into it anything defiled. Sin, even the smallest sin, stains the soul of man and defiles it to such a degree that it cannot appear before the face of God and have a share in the kingdom of heaven. But... Will such a soul which passes into the next world afflicted with such small and venial sins be forever cast into the torments of hell? Certainly not. For our Savior himself contradicts plainly such a belief by calling the just man, though he falls seven times into small sins, still a just man. And who on account of being a just man, though he fall into venial sins, still belongs to the number of the elect. When therefore God can, on the one side, not receive into the kingdom of heaven such a just soul, which has passed away from this earth, afflicted with venial sins, and on the other hand, cannot condemn a just soul to the tortures of hell, then there must be necessarily 
some other place set aside where these souls may purify themselves from such defects, so that they may be able to reach the kingdom of heaven, to which on account of their justness they have a claim. Of such a purification of just souls in the world to come, the Holy Ghost says in Scripture through the prophet Zacharias, I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried. If then silver and gold are burned in the furnace for no other purpose than that they may be freed from dross, consequently, in the same way, those souls will be tried and purified in fire by the Lord. Therefore, the Holy Ghost says of those souls which the Lord has received into heaven after such trial and purification, as gold in the furnace, he hath proved them. This truth, my dear friends, which has been proclaimed to us by the Holy Ghost, has been ever adhered to by God's chosen people, as well as by our Holy Church. Therefore, we find already under the old law that the Jews brought sacrifices to the temple to deliver the souls of the dead from purgatory. Judas Maccabeus, who adhered to the faith of his fathers with such great zeal, sent 12,000 drams of silver as a sacrifice for his brethren who had fallen in battle. And Holy Scripture says distinctly in the second book of Maccabees where this occurrence is narrated, It is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from sin. Now then, my dear people, how can such sacrifices and prayers refer to deliverance of the damned in hell? Never. For this deliverance is impossible. Consequently, God must have created some other place from which it is possible to effect the deliverance of the souls of the dear departed. This faith, which is so clearly expressed in the Old Covenant, has been confirmed with equal distinctness by our Savior Jesus Christ himself. He calls purgatory a prison, and says, Amen, I say to thee, thou shalt not go out from thence till thou repay the last farthing. In these words, Jesus speaks of atonement for sins, of a delivery from the prison, but the punishment in hell is eternal. Hence he speaks distinctly of a temporary place of punishment of a place of purification, where the souls of the just can be freed of unrepented sins, and purified for their entrance into the kingdom of heaven. At another time our divine Savior says, But he that shall speak against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Could the divine Savior speak more explicitly of a place of purification in the other world than he has in these words. According to him, the pardoning of sins is possible in the other world, but this cannot be done in hell, because the Savior himself calls hell eternal fire. And it cannot be done in heaven, for the apostle says nothing unclean can enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, there must be some other place where it is possible to obtain forgiveness, and it is this other place which we call purgatory. In his first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul the Apostle states the exact way by which the soul of man may be freed from unrepented sins. Every man's work 
shall be manifest. For the day of the Lord shall declare it, because it shall be revealed in fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. We must repeat again that the apostle could not have spoken thus of hellfire, because he would then have contradicted the teachings of our Lord. His words, therefore, refer to a place of purification, from which, according to these words, delivery is possible, but not otherwise than through fire. But why should we add further proof? The words in Holy Scripture, the sayings of our Lord and his apostles, are all plain enough, and for that reason has our church, from the time of the apostles down to our days, ever steadfastly adhered to and preserved the belief in a place of purification in the world to come. Dionysius the Areopagite writes during the first century of a place of purification. In the writings of Origenus in the year 120, this dogma of the church is expressly mentioned. Listen to his own words. He says, When the soul of man brings with it into eternity many good works and only a few sinful deeds, these must be loosened from it like lead by fire, and that what remains is pure gold. The more lead one brings with him, the more one will have to burn in the fire of purification. Let us listen to St. Augustine. He calls this place of purification a passing fire, and says he will be saved, but only as by fire. One is cleansed not from heavy, but from light sins. The greater the number of our sins, the longer we will have to remain in this passing fire of purification. We therefore find this belief in the earliest days of the church. She has received it from the apostles and will hold steadfastly to it until the end of time. It is founded upon the revelation of the Holy Ghost and the gospel of our Lord, and it is therefore proven without any doubt that there is a place of purification a purgatory in the world yonder, wherein those souls which cannot appear before the face of the Lord on account of minor sins will be cleansed and purified until they are declared worthy of being united to their God. For the present I will not speak, my dear people, of the pains and tortures which the souls of the departed will have to suffer in purgatory, as the apostle gives us to understand sufficiently the frightfulness of the tortures by the sentence, they will be cleansed as by fire. Enough for us to feel anxious that perhaps, with arms stretched forth, they call to us and exclaim with the abandoned Job, have pity on me, have pity on me, at least you, my friends. All oh, my dear Christians, children or brothers or sisters, perhaps of deceased that are lying buried in graves, don't be hard of heart at the sighs and supplications of your parents and relations. Fold your hands, raise them to God, and succor by prayer and good works the suffering souls from their tortures. They cannot help themselves, but we can rescue them by our prayers and good deeds. Of this we will speak now. St. Augustine, my dear Christians, points out plainly in which way we may come to the rescue of the poor souls in purgatory. There is no doubt, he says, that through the prayers of the church, through the most holy sacrifice, through deeds of charity, 
we may aid the departed. Prayer is then a certain means by which we can further the deliverance of the poor souls. The Holy Ghost explicitly states this fact in Holy Scripture. It is, he says, a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that they may be loosed from sin. Expressly, listen again, expressly the Holy Ghost says in Holy Scripture that the deceased by our prayers may be loosened from sin. I will therefore ask today all those who forget their deceased brethren, what love is this which does not think daily of the deliverance of our deceased fellow Christians? What love is this that can forget those who in life loved us so dearly? What love is this that can forget those who have done for us so many acts of kindness while they were living? Child, where is your love for your deceased parents? Brother, where is your love for your deceased brother that you do not pray every day so that those dear ones may be loosened from their sins? Have you forgotten your own flesh and blood? Have you forgotten the many acts of kindness they did for you during their lifetime? Have you forgotten those promises you gave them before death closed their eyes? Oh, listen to the groans of your loved dear ones in that awful prison. Pay by a devout prayer a little might they are still owing and rescue those who have perhaps waited a very long time for their deliverance. The saintly Cardinal Hugo exhorts us with impressive words to remember this duty and says, To obtain deliverance for the dead, you that are still among the living of this world should remember them in your prayers, so that they may gain through them eternal peace. In a still more urgent manner, St. Augustine calls upon us with the words, Forget not the dead, and hasten to pray for them. Yes, make haste. Perhaps you may be able this very day to liberate from that prison by a devout prayer a soul which otherwise might have to sigh and suffer for many a day. Another means by which we can free the poor souls from their suffering is, according to St. Augustine, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. St. Monica, the mother of this saint, recognized the truth of this and said on her deathbed to her son, Don't think of burying my body in magnificent style and of embalming me and where you will bury me. Only think of one thing I beg of you. Remember me at the altar of the Lord and offer up the most holy sacrifice of the Mass for the benefit of my soul. St. Monica, my dear people, knew very well that there is no better remedy for the souls of the deceased than the most holy sacrifice of the Mass. When the good Judas Maccabeus sent 12,000 drachmas to the temple in Jerusalem as a sacrifice for the benefit of his soldiers who had fallen in battle, so that by virtue of this sacrifice they might be freed from their sins, then tell me, may we not reasonably expect the deliverance of souls from purgatory by the greater virtue of the most holy sacrifice of the Mass? If the sacrifice of earthly things which have not the least value in the eyes of the Lord and only obtain value before him from our good intentions which accompany the sacrifice is considered efficacious for obtaining deliverance for the souls in purgatory, how much greater must be the efficacy of the sacrifice of the Lord's own body 
the value of which no man has ever been able to imagine to aid the poor souls to their deliverance. And if the bloody sacrifice on the cross, which was able to atone for the curse of God brought upon mankind by the greatest sins of men, and which was able to open up the gates of heaven, which had been closed on account of these sins, may we not expect that the same sacrifice of our Lord offered bloodlessly on the altar would be efficacious enough to free the poor souls of a few little sins, small faults, which had not changed God's love into wrath, but only dimmed it. We will continue with this sermon from the venerable curé of ours on side B of this tape. We continue now with the sermons for the feast days of the year from the venerable curé of ours and the sermon for All Souls Day. St. John Chrysostom expresses a great truth when referring to that sacrifice which Job offered up for the purification of his children. He says, If Job's sacrifice purified his children, who can doubt that through our sacrifice of the Holy Mass we can bring consolation to the poor souls? And therefore St. Anthony is justified in saying, The most holy sacrifice of the Mass in which the Passion of our Lord is perpetually celebrated, is in itself the finest and best remedy for the souls in purgatory. It is the staff upon which they raise themselves into heaven and eternal rest. By authority of Scripture and the Holy Fathers, the Church pronounces this dogma and says the souls in purgatory are aided by the holy sacrifice of the Mass. According to the opinion of St. Gregory and St. Jerome, the poor souls in purgatory sigh and long for nothing so much as that the most holy sacrifice of the Mass be offered up for them. Listen to St. Gregory's own words. The offering of the holy sacrifice of the Mass for the poor souls in purgatory is of great benefit to them, and they long for it with grievous wailings. St. Jerome is of the opinion that the holy sacrifice causes alleviation to the suffering of the poor souls while it is being offered up to the Heavenly Father. These are his words. The souls who are suffering in purgatory and whom the priest prays for on the altar during Mass do not feel the tortures of purgatory during the time that the Mass lasts. They ask for nothing more. They wish for nothing more than this bloodless sacrifice. Hasten then, my dear friends, to this source of aid for the poor souls as often as you can. Offer up to the Heavenly Father with the priest on the altar, the Lamb of God, as a ransom for their sins. Offer up the great merits of this holy sacrifice for their faults and shortcomings for which they still may have to suffer. And pray, O Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world, give these poor souls eternal peace. A third medium by which we can be of help to the poor souls in their sufferings are works of charity. Do not let us stop to ask for a proof of this. If we can turn the merits of our prayers, the merits of the most holy sacrifice of the Mass, over to the benefit of the poor souls, we can, in like manner, turn over the merits of our works of charity, 
which we are practicing for the good of suffering humanity, for the benefit of the poor souls. One thing is certain, our acts of charity turn God's anger into mercy, and if we at the same moment at which we have brought forth God's mercy by a merciful act of our own recommend to the Lord's mercy one or all souls which still have to suffer, he will have pity on those souls. The Holy Ghost says, Water quencheth a flaming fire, and alms resisteth sins. Therefore St. Augustine is justified in saying, The alms of a Christian is a sacrifice of propitiation, whereby God's wrath is appeased toward the sinner. Yes, continues St. Chrysostom, alms does even more. It stands before the judgment seat of God and asks the Lord not only for mercy, but also moves him to pronounce a merciful judgment. See then, O Christian, alms loosens from sin, extinguishes sin. It appeases God's wrath before the sinner. It moves him to pronounce a merciful judgment over the sinner. Well then, a little gift, a small part of your earthly goods, a little something from that which your deceased friends have left you, give it to a needy person and say, O merciful God, I offer thee this gift of charity in the person of this poor man. Be merciful to those souls that are separated from you and are still suffering in purgatory. Remit their sins and deliver them from their sufferings. Thou hast said, Give, and it shall be given to you. See, O Lord, I give to this poor person, I give to thee. Give me for it, I pray you, that soul on whose behalf I offer you this gift, the soul of my father, of my mother, the soul of my brother and sister, and receive it into your eternal peace. Let us then, my dear Christians, in this manner, come to the rescue of those poor souls. Are they not our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our relatives and friends, who are perhaps still suffering beyond? They are our parents, our relations, our father to whom we owe our existence, our mother who has borne us under her heart, our brother, our sister, who loved us so dearly, our friends who were so dear to our hearts. Oh, do not let us be hard against our own flesh and blood. Do not let us forget them who call to us every day, have pity on us, have pity on us, at least you, our friends. Let us pray for them every day. Let us go to the altar for them and receive the most holy sacrament. Let us give alms to the poor for them, so that God in his mercy may soon receive them into his eternal peace and heavenly joys. Amen. The Sermon for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception Sanctifying Grace, the Most Precious Gift Hail, Full of Grace These words with which the angel saluted Mary, the tender virgin in the little room at Nazareth, might have been applied to her before she saw the light of this world. Whilst all other men, in consequence of their descent from Adam and Eve, are stained with original sin, Mary was, from the first moment of her existence, by a special favor of God and the merits of his divine Son, free from original sin, and so adorned with sanctifying grace, which preserved her from sin, that 
Not for one moment of her life was she deprived of sanctifying grace. For this reason, the angel salutes her with the words, Thou art full of grace. And from this salutation of the angels, the Holy Fathers conclude that Mary was conceived and born without sin. The sanctifying grace with which Mary was conceived and born always increased during her blessed life, and therefore she was full of grace. According to the opinion of St. Augustine, the mother of God was more blessed because she bore the Son of God in her heart than that she bore him in her womb, that is to say, more blessed through sanctifying grace than through the divine motherhood. What a precious gift from heaven then must be sanctifying grace. We have become partakers thereof in holy baptism, and when we have lost it by a grievous sin, we have obtained it again by worthily receiving the sacrament of penance. Oh, if we only knew how to prize this grace of God, for it is more precious than all that the world offers. It is our true dignity, our true wealth, our true happiness, here and hereafter. Holy Mary, full of grace, stand by us in today's contemplation, so that we may for the future after your example, guard carefully and increase the precious treasure of sanctifying grace, so that we may live and die in the grace of God. Sanctifying grace raises man to the highest dignity, namely the dignity of a child of God. We became children of God in holy baptism. When we came into this world, we were laden with original sin, and therefore, as the apostle says, were by nature the children of wrath, objects of God's displeasure. Through holy baptism, that bath of regeneration, we were cleansed from original sin and adorned with sanctifying grace. And through this grace we became an object of the divine good pleasure, children of God. As at the baptism of Jesus, so at the baptism of a child, the heavenly Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And here the beloved disciple cries out in admiration, Behold what manner of charity the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called and should be the sons of God. Dear Christians, to be a friend of God is truly a great happiness, a great honor. Now was it not a great honor for Abraham that God spoke to him as friend to friend? But the honor of a child of God is still greater, for the child belongs to the family and is an heir. And does not the world consider it glorious to belong to a royal family, to be the child of a king, or possibly the heir to the throne? And yet, what is this dignity in comparison with the dignity of a child of God, the king of kings, and the heir to the kingdom of heaven? By this dignity, the Christian enters into the family of God, and so into the most intimate fellowship with God. And to this high dignity, even a beggar is raised through sanctifying grace. If he possesses this, he is a child of God, a son of the Almighty King. Oh, that Christians would think of their high dignity, to which they are raised by baptism, or if they've lost it, to which they are restored through the sacrament of penance. A wise king gave his son this advice. Wherever you may be, 
always remember that you are a king's son and behave befitting this dignity. Yes, dear Christian, you too remember that you are a child of God and bear yourself according to this dignity. Avoid everything which is low and mean. Avoid conversations and actions which dishonor and offend God and which are unbecoming a child of God. Be contented with your state. Do not envy others who are placed higher than you are. Remember that earthly greatness and grandeur are vain and transitory. For what brings man respect and dignity? Virtue, according to the words of Holy Scripture. Oh, how beautiful is the chaste generation with glory. For the memory thereof is immortal, because it is known both with God and with men. Sin, on the other hand, causes disgrace and shame. Therefore this prayer is recommended to all, but especially to Christian young women. Preserve us from sin and shame. What gives man real greatness? A self-sacrificing love for God and our neighbor. For this reason we honor a St. Martin, a St. Vincent de Paul, and so many others. What gives an undying fame? Briefly, holiness of life, the fruit of grace. Mary was unimportant in the eyes of the world, and in her own eyes, a lowly maiden. But great was her holiness before God, and in her unto this day are these words fulfilled. Behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. As sanctifying grace makes us truly great, so it makes us truly rich. In the Apocalypse it says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and made wealthy, I have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Many in this world are rich, like the rich glutton, but poor before God. Many are poor in this world, like poor Lazarus, but rich before God. For he who has not sanctifying grace is poor, but he who has it is rich before God, rich in real treasures, truly rich. What the old law says of wisdom is true in the new law of sanctifying grace. Now all good things came to me together with her and innumerable riches through her hands. Yes, with sanctifying grace come all the other graces. For by sanctifying grace, which is the life of the soul, we are living members of that body of which Christ is the head. By it we partake of the merits of Jesus Christ and his saints, partake in all the treasures of grace which Jesus Christ has left to his church, so that we can say with the psalmist, I am a partaker with all them that fear thee and that keep thy commandments. We partake in all the prayers and good works of the saints and the just, because we stand with them in a living communion, which is called the communion of saints. Through sanctifying grace we shall be like a good tree, which yieldeth good fruit, so that the least good action, the cup of cold water, given in the name of Jesus, will bring us a heavenly reward. On the other hand, he who has not sanctifying grace can do nothing meritorious for heaven, not even if he made the greatest sacrifice. Therefore, 
sanctifying grace as a rich source of heavenly treasures in comparison with which all earthly treasures are to be considered as naught. What do you possess, cries out St. Augustine, if you do not possess the only good, which is God? The possessions of this world cannot satisfy the heart of man because it is created for God and therefore can only find rest in God. As the same saint says, Thou hast created us for thyself, O God, and our heart is uneasy until it rests in thee. Mary, who was adorned from the first moment of her conception with sanctifying grace, not only carefully preserved it, but by a holy life cooperated with it faithfully, and every moment of her life increased this sanctifying grace, so that she was filled with grace and also overflowing with merit for heaven. Yes, she was not only the fullest in grace, but also the richest in heavenly treasures. We can apply to her the praise of Holy Scripture. Many daughters have gathered together riches. Thou hast surpassed them all. Let us follow Mary's example. Let us preserve sanctifying grace as the most precious treasure. Let us take care not to commit grievous sin. And should we fall into grievous sin, let us not delay to purify our hearts therefrom in the sacrament of penance. And as Solomon prayed for one thing, namely wisdom, with which all good came to him at the same time, let us pray to God and Mary for one thing, sanctifying grace, with which comes all good. Our true happiness in time as well as in eternity consists in sanctifying grace. For wisdom will not enter into a malicious soul, nor dwell in a body subject to sins. Even so, sanctifying grace and with it the Holy Ghost cannot enter and dwell in a soul which is not at least free from grievous sin. Where sanctifying grace is, there is also a good conscience. For the Spirit himself giveth testimony to our spirit that we are the sons of God. Where sanctifying grace is, there is in addition the hope of eternal life. For the apostle says, And if sons, heirs also, heirs indeed of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Yet so if ye suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. And this hope fills us with consolation in suffering, as often as we say with the apostle, For I reckon that the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come. That shall be revealed in us. Yes, sanctifying grace is the surest pledge of eternal life itself. For if we die in it, we are sure of heaven, and we shall be eternally happy. The world cannot make us happy in time and eternity. Only holy religion and sanctifying grace, and all those who claim they make the world happy without religion, are false prophets. How sanctifying grace, joined to the testimony of the conscience, brings consolation, we see in Mary, who being full of grace was also full of consolation in the greatest and bitterest sufferings. On the other hand, man, even when the world offers him so many charming pleasures, has no real happiness if he fails to have sanctifying grace, the testimony of a good conscience 
for there is no peace to the wicked, saith the Lord. And if the wicked have no peace, neither have they consolation in life or death. They are therefore unhappy for time and eternity. It is then sanctifying grace which makes us great before God, truly rich in God, and eternally happy with God. Indeed, he who has found it has found a precious treasure, more precious than all the treasures of the world which cannot make us really happy. And we lose this precious treasure by grievous sin. Oh, how foolishly the sinner behaves who for a vain honor, for a miserable desire, sells his precious gift, his kinship of God, his heirship to heaven, his soul, and his blessedness. Let us then avoid sin and pray to Mary, the Immaculate Mother of God, for a pure heart. Ave Maria, gratia plena. Holy Mary, as you were full of grace on earth, so you are in heaven full of glory as Queen of heaven. But you are still full of grace for us poor pilgrims of earth. For thou art, as the Holy Father tells us, the treasurer of heavenly grace. Through thy hands graces are dispensed, which thy divine Son has merited. Thy hands are filled, as thou didst once appear to a saint with shining jewels, the heavenly treasures of grace. O oh, stretch forth thy merciful hand, enrich and bless us, Mary, and keep us in the state of grace. Pray for us, Mary. Amen. The Sermon for the Nativity of Our Lord, God with us, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Beloved brethren, assembled in the name of Jesus Christ, on the plains of Bethlehem the angels of heaven brought to the shepherds and to us a wonderful message of joy. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all the people. For this day is born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. Since the world was made, no such message of joy has ever been brought to men. Men bring one another messages of joy. How many joyful sounds have already been heard upon earth? How many days of happiness are arranged? How many joyful messages are brought? But the sounds of joy are carried away on the air to leave behind only slight remembrances, like faint lights. Joyful days pass away, and days of visitation follow days of blessing, and joyful chimes are often changed to chimes of mourning. How often is the joy of one the sorrow of the other? How often does it happen that what to one is a cause of jubilation, to another is an occasion for tears? And even if the curse of inconstancy and the reverse of earthly happiness did not sadden man's joyful message, it would still be incapable of making the heart of man happy in its deepest depths. It does not send its rays right down to the bottom of the heart. It is hardly able to gild the walls of our soul with its feeble, caressing light. But the angel's message on the plains of Bethlehem was of quite another kind. It did not come from the palaces of earthly kings or from the halls of pleasure or from the markets of the earth. It came from heaven, bringing with it heavenly flowers, heavenly blessings, and heavenly graces. 
the angels, messengers from the choirs of blessed light, bring it on lips overflowing with jubilation, pure and undefiled, without shadow of deception and sorrow, rings out the jubilee down upon the earth, laden with sin, and it reaches into our innermost hearts. It is announced not to one or the other, but to the beggar and the king, the child and the old man, the poor and the rich. The angels announced to the shepherds that it should be made known to all people in the east and the west, in the north and the south. It shall ring forth and make joyful through all the ages. It shall never cease, not even when the world shall keep its vigil and the book of humanity will be closed and then it will ring on in eternity. A Savior is born to you who is Christ the Lord. Oh, who can depict the joy of a Christmas festival? Over our altars floats the joy of this joyful message. From the plains of Bethlehem, it sinks into our hearts and breathes consolation and hope into our souls. The Savior is born for us, a Savior who will deliver us from sin and from the thraldom of Satan, who reconciles us to God and opens heaven unto us. What this Savior is his name tells us that the prophet Isaiah announced, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, God with us, that's the meaning of the joyful message of the angel. God with us, in his humanity, in his childhood, in his poverty. This is what we will contemplate, dearly beloved. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. God with us in his humanity. The angels announced that the Savior was born who was Christ the Lord. That is to say that the second person of the Trinity had taken a human nature, a human body, and a human soul, the same as we have. He has become one of us. He is like us in all things with the exception of sin, says the apostle. That is the first step of the mercy of God which we devoutly adore in the crib at Bethlehem. Sin separated man from God. Between man and God there yawned a deep chasm which man was not capable of bridging over. The Lord God had already given the world proofs of his mercy before the incarnation of his Son, but it was on account of the coming Messiah. Without it, there was only before us the avenging justice of an angry God who punishes the sins of the Father from generation to generation. Full of longing, the fathers of past ages looked for the day in which the Lord God would pour out the greatness of his compassion upon the sinful, fallen generation. Most beautifully does the prophet Isaiah console mankind in their languishing misery. Say to the faint-hearted, Take courage and fear not. Behold, your God will bring the revenge of recompense. God himself will come and will save you. God himself. Who can measure the greatness of this compassion? A prince is certainly merciful if he sends a messenger with gifts to the poor in their forsaken garret. This is what God could have done. He could have sent us a Moses to break the chains of our slavery. He could have sent us a prophet, Jonas, to preach penance to us. He could have let Elias appear to us again to bring the word of God like a burning torch. 
that would have been great mercy. But God wanted to do more than this. The Apostle Paul described it in these words, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, last of all, in these days, hath spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Now every human heart takes part in the jubilation of Elizabeth at the visit of the Blessed Virgin. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? God comes himself. If a prophet or an angel had come, man's longing for God, for a more intimate communication with God, would not have been satisfied. In every human heart there exists this question, which the psalmist expresses in these words, Ubi es Deus, where is God? Where is my God, says the child at his mother's knee? Where is my God, says the youth in his striving after happiness? So says the old man when he's dying. The apostle St. Paul says that in the times before Christ, the people went looking for God in the valleys, on the summits of the mountains, on the banks of the rivers, and in the depths of the forests, erecting altars to bring God down to them. All this longing of the people, all this desire of the human heart, was fulfilled in the crib at Bethlehem. God himself comes. How will he come? In his majesty, in the brightness of his divine glory? Then we men would not be capable of bearing his look and his presence. Will he come perhaps as a cloud over the Ark of the Covenant in the temple at Jerusalem? this would not be sufficient for the mercy of God. He wished to be more to us. Will he perhaps come in the semblance of a body amongst us men, as some heretics have supposed? No, God himself comes after having taken a real human body and a human soul. So far as his mercy led him so far, has he made himself like unto nothing. The apostle describes it with these words, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and in habit found as a man. God himself comes. He becomes man like one of us. Who can comprehend the greatness of the mercy of God in his abasement? Let the eagle become a worm and at the same time preserve his eagle nature. You give him the greatest torture, because he can no longer move his wings. Give the lion with his lion nature the form of a snail, and he would roar with pain. What a fetter is our body for our soul! But it bears no comparison to the abasement which God laid upon himself when he took a human body and abased himself like unto a man. Why this abasement? Because the Son of God wished to come as near to us men as possible. God with us, one of us. There flows from the incarnate Son of God the blessings of divinity upon all men, the members of the same family, members of the mystical body of Christ. As if the sun sank into a drop of water in the ocean, and through this drop 
would light up all the other drops in the ocean, as if noble graft was engrafted upon the wild olive tree, all the branches and twigs would partake of the strength of this graft, says St. Augustine. So have we men, since the incarnation of Jesus Christ, a part in his glory, in his graces, and in his merits. God with us. He abased himself to exalt us. The blessing begins already in the crib. Now the condition of the poor and the sickbed of the sick become meritorious in Christ our Savior. Now every tear which is shed by faith and through contemplating him with these is God well pleased. God with us now is freedom brought to men, for God is a God of freedom. The chains are loosened with which the slaves were fettered. The lowly and the poor have the rights of man restored to them. After the Son of God becoming a brother to the lowliest amongst men, the dignity and equality of man is given by Christ to the world. God with us. What the incarnate Son of God suffered, the atonement made by him to the heavenly Father, is the portion of every man. He is the Redeemer of all. God with us. The incarnate Son of God understands the hard lot of man. He prepared himself a chalice of sufferings to make satisfaction for us. Everything which belongs to us men serves him for the performance of this work of mercy. The crib, the thorns, the scourge, and the spear are in his hands the tools of our redemption. God with us. Then will the incarnate Son of God go the way of his conquest over this curse-laden earth. In him the mercy of God travels the way from Galilee to Judea, healing the sick, raising the dead to life, commanding the winds, stilling the waves of the sea, seeking the sinner, like the shepherd going after his lost sheep, and finally taking away the sting from death. God with us, the incarnate Son of God, will live a life of mercy towards all men until the day of judgment. In him and with his incarnate hands, the mercy of God flows on the waters, so as to prepare this water as a bath of regeneration for my child in holy baptism. It extends to the olive tree to prepare from its fruit the holy oil for the sacrament of extreme unction for the sick and for the anointing of the priests. It takes hold of the breath of the priestly mouth to say to the sinner bending under the weight of his sins, Go in peace, thy sins are forgiven thee. God with us. The mercy of God will in his incarnate Son pass over the vineyards of this earth and come into our fields of wheat to lay hold of the bread and wine and in their form by the mystery of transubstantiation from his body and his blood to give us food and drink for our souls so that his mercy may have its triumphant fulfillment because by holy communion we are in him and he is in us. God with us. He will live also upon our altars and dwell in the midst of our hearts. His name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. God with us in his childhood. The Son of God took another merciful step 
when he appeared upon earth as a child. The angels announced to the shepherds, You will find an infant. Without doubt, the Son of God might have appeared upon earth as a grown man, but he did not do this. He abased himself and lay in the crib as a helpless infant. The heathens have represented Jupiter with lightning in his eyes, falcons at his feet, flaming swords in his hands, no hand free to bless. Our divine Savior wished to appear very differently, not a threatening, mighty figure, not armed with lightning. No, he appeared as a child, full of love, full of tenderness, full of joy. The child looks at everyone. At the sight of the child, all fear vanishes. All may approach a child without fear, the high and the low, the learned and the unlearned, the rich and the poor. How near has God come unto us? When Moses descended from the mountain, the majesty of God shone from his countenance, and the mountain shook with thunder and lightning. They smoked and flamed. Then the people begged in their fright, Speak thou to us, and we will hear. Let not the Lord speak to us, lest we die. The prophet Daniel says of the appearance of God, I was afraid, and fell down upon my face. St. John says, I saw thy countenance, O Lord, and fell down at thy feet as one dead. God has not approached us in such state. A child is born to us. Now we can go to the throne of his mercy with confidence. At the crib, all fear vanishes. The greatest criminal draws near to the child with assurance and confidence. What opens more easily than the hands of a little child? God with us in the form of a child leads us men to God and lets us find mercy. Of a truth, he has given himself to us in weakness and lowliness. His triumph is a triumph of love, for he, the merciful God, became a child. What is weaker than an infant? Had the Son of God come with the power of this world to conquer the world, then perhaps his victory would have been reckoned amongst the triumphs of earthly lords. He comes as an infant, without the pomp of this world, to vanquish the world. He comes without human help to besiege the hearts of men. What is nothingness in the world he has chosen so as to put to shame that which is powerful? This infant, so helpless in the crib, holds the world in his arms. By this infant, the Son of God, everything was made that has been made. In him is life, and the life is the light of mankind. He is the life that animates the church. In him is the strength of the martyrs with which they shed their blood for love of him. In him is the virtue of every saint. He works through the priestly office. In him is the strength which makes the chief shepherd a rock on which the everlasting church is founded. What a wonderful triumph Emmanuel celebrates. God with us in the weakness of an infant, over all obstacles in the world. If I am weak, then I am strong. God with us in the form of a child. What is more humble than a child? The Son of God preaches to us in his infancy from the crib. Unless you become as little children, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. The child is not worldly and sensual, 
The child is unselfish, is humble, and pure of heart. Oh, when we come to the crib, let us bring our Savior a childlike, repentant heart and pray to him that we may be as little children, that we as children may walk in the purity of our hearts, that we may be humble before God and men. There's a beautiful legend which says that a boy encountered the mother of God in the flight into Egypt and begged for the favor of carrying the divine child in his arms. The mother of God accorded him this privilege. When the boy came to a stream and looked into the water and saw his face, he noticed that the features of the divine child were imprinted upon his own. We also will pray the divine child that he may imprint the spiritual features of his childish innocence and humility upon our souls so that we may become as children. How beautiful it is to say of a Christian man, before the world a man, before God a child. In the eyes of the world a man, in the constancy of his opinions and of his faith a child. A child in his love of prayer, for the child prays. In his love of humility, for the child is humble. In its love of purity, for the child shuns what is impure. Emmanuel, God with us, in his childhood he draws our hearts toward him, vanquishes the world, and teaches us how to become as children, that we may obtain the kingdom of heaven. We will continue with the cure of our sermon for Christmas on tape number two. Please join us. We continue now with the sermons for the feast days of the year from the venerable cure of ours and the sermon for Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us in his poverty. Out of love for us, the Son of God has taken a step further in his mercy. He took unto himself our human nature. He was born amongst us as a little child, and he appeared amongst us in poverty. The angels announced to the shepherds, You shall find the infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Stable, crib, swaddling clothes represent the greatest poverty, the poverty of dwelling, the poverty of the way of living. The kings and the emperors of this world are born in palaces. Heathendom had built for the unknown God whom it sought a temple in all the glory of the world because it could not make to itself any other idea of God than that he would appear in earthly splendor. The Son of God appears upon earth and rejects all earthly possessions, all wealth, for he needed them not. As Tertullian says, had he so desired it, he could have made himself a house on earth in which splendor and wealth dwell. Why did he choose poverty? Undoubtedly, he is nearer to us in poverty, more God with us than if he had appeared in wealth. To us, poverty is our very existence. How poor and helpless is even the rich man if he had the disposition of his health, his fate, and his life he would be perplexed. How poor is the king when he's visited with pain? He may have to go begging for a word of consolation and a sympathetic heart. 
and how much poverty is there in the lives of the majority of men. How poor is work, which is the lot of man. Therefore, the Savior wanted to be nearer to the poor man. That is why he appeared upon this earth in the utmost poverty. When Cyrus had vanquished the Persians by the sword, he possessed dominion over them. But when he wished to win the hearts of the Persians, he clothed himself as a Persian. That is how our Savior wished to win our hearts. Therefore, he took upon himself our weakness, our lowliness, our poverty, so as to approach us as nearly as possible as a poor child. Emmanuel, God with us. Now all hearts feel drawn towards him, especially those of the poor. The poor have a special right to the love and the association of the incarnate Son of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the great sermon which our Savior preached in the poor stable, which he announced from the poor crib. No mother can provide a poorer bed for her child than that provided for the Son of God upon earth in the crib. Now through him, the Son of God, poverty is no longer despicable, no longer shameful, no longer mean. Through him is poverty ennobled, exalted, and sanctified. Blessed are the poor in spirit. A rich stream of peace flows from the Savior's crib into the hearts of the poor of this world. There the poor, kneeling before the crib, are contented with their poverty. The heathen philosophers could not unravel the mysteries of poverty and suffering. The wisdom of this world cannot attempt to make the cross of poverty light. No statecraft of the earth, with all its theories of making the people happy, can draw the thorn of bitterness out of the hearts of the poor. There is only one thing that can content the poor in their poverty. It is Christ, the Savior, born poor into this world. Since he wandered poor upon this earth, Christendom has contented poor as Lazarus was contented outside the rich man's palace. Since then, Christendom has generous poor like the poor widow who dropped a penny into the alms box in the temple. Since then, Christendom has patient poor as the poor thief upon the cross was patient in his sufferings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How near the poor are to the divine child Jesus. St. Francis, inspired with the poverty of the divine infant, chose poverty as his bride, and as his queen begged from God for poverty as the partner of his life, and sung its most beautiful praises. O you who are poor on this earth, come to the crib of the divine Savior. He will console you, make you happy, give you peace, so that you may be blessed in your poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit that, as St. Bernard says, preaches the stable that calls to us the crib that announces as gospel the tears of the divine infant. It is enough for all. We learn from the poor child Jesus that it is a delusion of the world that possessions can make us happy, that money can give us liberty, that wealth can redeem us. Let us tear away our hearts from all inordinate attachments to earthly goods. Let us use the goods of this world as steps to bring us nearer heaven by performing works of charity. 
Let us, by a spiritual renouncement of all inordinate attachment to money and possessions, by overcoming all immoderate desires for wealth, make our heart into a crib so that we may have a dwelling that we can offer to the divine Savior as he seeks and desires a dwelling of poverty so that he may return to our hearts he who is in the most perfect manner our Emmanuel, our God with us and in us. In this way, if we humble ourselves, will our divine Savior take possession of us. Then will the angels sing in our hearts as they did on the plains of Bethlehem, that message of joy and peace to men of good will upon earth. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, with us in his humanity, in his childhood, in his poverty. To the blessed Suso was shown the Christ child on Christmas night lying on thorns, and he was told that he who wished to have the Christ child for his own must take him out of the thorns. And we will take the divine infant out of the thorns of his abasement, out of the thorns of his childlike humility, out of the thorns of his poverty. Then we will beseech him to renew and strengthen in us the spirit of self-renunciation, the simplicity of our hearts, the love of poverty, so that the divine infant will make us his own and be and remain with us through all eternity, our Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. The Sermon from the Curé of Ours for New Year's Eve. And none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? An old Christian proverb says beautifully and truthfully, Begin with God and end with God, and yours will be the happiest life. Everyone who has honestly striven to verify this has had a thousand opportunities to experience the truth of this pious proverb. I congratulate you, my dear friends, who have deemed it your sacred duty to begin every day with God. How serenely and with what satisfaction may you not look back upon the course of your life. And those of you also, my friends, I greet with joy, who began this year with God and are now come here to end it with him, who not only look up to the Almighty with grateful eyes, but also with a contrite heart, and who are convinced of the truth that all is vanity except to love God and to serve him that we may live forevermore. All of us, my dear friends, who are gathered together at this holy hour within these hallowed walls, carry within our souls the firm determination to close the year 1900 with God. The end of a year is and always will be a solemn moment. The departure of a year is fraught with serious admonition. We take leave of a father and mother, but in the hope of seeing them again, we leave a place to which we become attached, which is endeared to us and connected with indelible memories, but with the hope of one day returning to it. But the year when it has passed away is gone forever, and what it has taken away will never more return to us. Those 365 days of our existence have gone forever. Now let us look back, my friends, upon the year just ended. Can we look upon it with joyful hearts and a peaceful conscience? And can we welcome the coming year with hearts nerved with courage and without dread of the future? 
Aye, but there is a strange pang in our soul, full of anxious foreboding and secret dread. The battle of human minds for truth and for falsehood is growing fiercer from hour to hour, and the foundation of human society is trembling and threatens to collapse. And in many a poor human heart there is a private sorrow, and in many a house the light of hope has gone out. Very well, then, let us ask at this solemn hour, in this sacred place, where we stand in the real presence of him in the most holy sacrament, and try to find out why and how is all this happening so. And after we have asked this question from the bottom of our hearts and with honest sincerity, then we will try and solve the problem of what is to be done to enable us to begin the new year with hope and confidence. Now join me in devout prayer. I will continue, O Lord, in thy most holy name, O Lord of all times, thou wonderful ruler of the fate of men and nations. O Lord Jesus Christ, blessed through all eternity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior and our Redeemer, once addressed his disciples in these significant words. But now I go to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? We know whom Jesus meant, his Father by whom he was sent upon this earth to redeem and to save mankind. Yea, his Father, whose image he was, for doth he not say, He that seeth me seeth the Father also? And to him he returned after accomplishing his work. I go to him that sent me. We also go to our Father when our mission is fulfilled and our task on this earth is finished. We will come to him and make our abode with him, saith Jesus. We also are created to the image and likeness of God, for did not God himself say when he created Adam, Let us make man to our image and likeness. And when this temporal habitation, our body, breaks down, and returns to the dust from whence it came, that image, that likeness, our immortal soul, will also return from whence it came, will return to eternity, to God the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But now, dear friends, to reach the goal that we're striving for, to be sure that we may return to the Father's house with joyful hearts as God's own children, we must above all know the way which will lead us there. The wayfarer who knows where the end of his journey lies will surely and carefully take the right path which will bring him happily to his destination. It was 1900 years ago when the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. He, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He who laid down his life for us and offered himself on the cross as a sacrifice of propitiation. One day, said in distinct and solemn tones, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Since then the way lies open before us, and no one can say truthfully, I know it not. Let us at this moment raise our eyes to the realm above and greet with holy reverence the millions of saints who followed steadfastly and faithfully the way which the Redeemer had shown them. The way is not one of ease and comfort. It demands the entire sacrifice 
of a God-fearing heart. But it is the only way which leads to the Father, and those who followed it resolutely bedewed it with their tears, dyed it with their blood, and adorned it with the deeds of a living Christian faith. They alone found peace, and now shine in snowy garments with palms and crowns like stars in heaven, and cry out to the Christian pilgrims the encouraging words, Look up at us, regard us well, behold, this is thy reward if thou followest Jesus. But thousands upon thousands leave this path, and nobody asketh, Whither goest thou? And herein, my dear friends, we find the first and the last reason for our moral degeneration, the reason for the dreadful errors into which human society plunges. For the wanderer, when once he has left the right path, will never be able to measure the mistakes into which he may be led, and he never knows how to avoid the misfortune which will meet him on the abyss that yawns at his very feet. As the liar is never at a loss to contradict truths with a new lie, nor to add to this another one or ten others if need be, even so has the original but ever watchful father of lies, the prince of this world since the days of paradise, ever stood up, particularly against Christ and his church. To accomplish his purpose, he invented, about eighty years ago, a significant word of falsehood, full of meaning, which has since risen like a password from mouth to mouth. Its name is progress. A steadfast adherence to Christ and his church, a faithful pursuance of the way we are taught, is what we call progress. But to them, this is an old-fashioned and ridiculous thing, irreconcilable with the spirit of intelligence and the exigencies of the spirit of the times, which can only be to the taste of ignorant poor people or of men whose minds are steeped in monkish fanaticism and superstition. Now, my dear people, give me your undivided attention. The subject is too serious and too important that we should not try to answer the question, whence comes this language which we hear everywhere, day in, day out, in high and low circles, in the houses of the rich and the workshops of the poor, in mansions and in huts, on the highways and byways. It certainly did not come to us overnight, but it came to us, because millions are heeding the call of untruth and free thought, while nobody asketh, Whither goest thou? In the first place, and above all, it was the puffed-up science of the philosophers, full of pride and devoid of faith, which opened up the way to hell. The authority of divine revelation has been set against modern philosophy in order to enkindle the flame of so-called enlightenment. After the foundation of positive Christianity had been undermined and the seed had been sown in the hearts of the young from the lecturer's platform, it was an easy matter to disturb even the historical foundation upon which rests a nation's fame and right. They have made merry over the most sacred institutions, over the most revered customs and rites in Christian congregations and communities. They called them old-fashioned and contrary to the spirit of modern progress. They were abolished, new institutions were created, new laws were made, but all without faith 
without God, without Christ. For the word which God himself put into the mouth of the royal psalmist, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord keep the city, he watcheth in vain that keepeth it. This word of eternal truth has been long forgotten, has been scoffed at, and made a mockery of. And so, my dear friends, everything has become modern indeed. Government, family life, education, matrimony, all has been modernized. In fact, all our thoughts and deeds have been changed in the progress of modernization. Need we then be surprised at what's happening before our very eyes? Is it not the fruit of that tree which falsehood has planted in the place of truth, and of whose fruit the children of the earth eat with such eagerness? A horse which has thrown its rider and is running away tries frantically to free itself of bridle and reins. Man who wants to be free and untrammeled tears asunder the last bond which holds him in check. Hence, separation of state and church, separation of school and church, separation of marriage and church, separation of everything which stands in the way and might call to your mind the harassing question, Whither goest thou? Oh, my dear Jesus, what hast thou done to mankind that they put thee aside with such ingratitude and such indifference? What hast thou done to humankind, my beloved Catholic Church, that they turn sullenly away from thee and clamor for separation? Hast not Christ saved the world? Hast not Christianity destroyed the barbarity of paganism, spread culture and civilization over the world, sanctified matrimony and family life, taught us to know and practice all those virtues which bring peace to man and blessings to nations? Is not the church the continued visible Savior and Redeemer of the world, since he said explicitly to his apostles, As the Father hath sent me, so I send you? Is not the church the standard-bearer of the conceptions of right, obedience, and love? Does the church not assure every man his right? Does she not demand obedience in the name of God, and by virtue of divine authority, whose first and last command is love? Let us look at this a little closer. If modern governments imagine that they can govern man solely by their laws, let them take into consideration how long these people, after divesting themselves of all respect for divine authority, will have any respect for human authority. What weight will the oath have which even the modern state uses as the only decisive medium in judicial proceedings? What value, I ask, will the oath have when it is shorn of its terrible consequences in eternity, when the civil government does not concern itself with the question whether man has faith or not? We have no expectation that modern progress will abolish poverty or diminish the number of the poor. Well then, tear out of the heart of the poor his living Christian faith, his belief in him who was born a child of the poor in the stable of Bethlehem and lived all his life a poor man, so that we may learn to respect poverty and learn to suffer poverty with patience. Subdue the church of Christ, which in its chosen members takes upon itself voluntary poverty and bears it in humility before the world, and which has at the same time 
founded those innumerable benevolent institutions and associations for the relief of the sick, poor, and abandoned of this world, where we see them with touching devotion and heroic self-sacrifice softening the sufferings of the poor. Yes, deprive the poor of their faith in their poor Jesus. Take away from the church her consoling and benevolent influence, and you will see, you rich and powerful of this world, how you will fare. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh were at all time a source of moral ruin and great misery in this world. How sublime shines that ideal of chastity and virginity through the darkness of night. What a heavenly aroma arises from this sacred flower. Has not Christ taken his flesh from the ever-immaculate virgin? Has he not himself called holy virginity the highest gift of an elect soul? Is not the church the abode and the champion of holy virginity? For led by her hand, we see that land of saintly youths and maidens before whom we stand with awe and reverence. Destroy the church, and you will destroy also this sacred ideal. Then they want you to withdraw the school from the influence of the church. The school, they say, is an institution for instructing the young. But the school is by no means merely a place for instructing, but it is at the same time and preeminently the place for the education of the young. Our children take with them to school not only their intellects, but also their hearts and their souls, and the latter must receive quite as much attention as the former. Just as conscientious parents will not be indifferent as to how and by whom their children receive instruction as regards their intellects, they should also take a great interest in seeing that the right light shall shine into their hearts and souls. And this light is religion. The child's heart is naturally turned towards God and is grateful to those who will lead it there. Oh, how touching is the sight of a child at prayer and how close it draws to those who are teaching it to pray. It is therefore not only wrong, but also ungrateful to try to take away the children from those who are constantly holding before the little ones all that is divine, great, and holy, and who instruct them at the same time in all they need to know for the fulfillment of their duties as good citizens. I am not a schoolmaster and cannot judge between the different methods of teaching, said the old Duke of Wellington in the House of Lords in London. But I wish most emphatically to give expression to my firm conviction that if religion is not made the foundation of teaching, it will be your fault if in the future the number of clever rogues in the world is largely increased. In a nation or a state or a family or community where religion is despised and allowed to perish, there the process of disintegration will invariably occur. It was in the year 1789 when this process was very evident in the state of France. After the holy Catholic faith had been derided and scoffed at for many years, in word and picture, in writings and plays, in public lectures and so-called clubs, and after unbelief and licentiousness had been given full sway, the French Revolution broke out. All religion was considered a mortal crime. 
Priests were killed when they could not flee or hide themselves. Churches were robbed and desecrated. In some places the wickedness went even so far that a lewd woman was placed upon the altar and mock ceremonies carried on before her as a goddess of reason. When the strong barriers, religion and conscience, conscience, which keeps man from all wickedness, had been removed throughout the whole country, a new power, as it were, the raging of the devil, broke loose all over the land. Envy, hatred, and cupidity, in a degree as they'd never been known to exist before, exercised their power with reckless disregard and wild fury. People were slaughtered by the thousands, by order of their own government, in most cases without their having committed any offense. It was enough to be suspected of an attachment for the murdered royal family, or for the old order of things, or for religion, to be condemned to death on the guillotine. My friends, the world is round, and there is nothing new under the sun. It has never been possible to gather grapes from thorns, or figs from thistles. What a man sows, that will he reap. We also shall have the same experience. We shall have to suffer for what we ourselves, or for what others have sown, in fatal self-conceit. With us also, the same causes will produce like results and the laws of nature and necessity, bearing the testimony of the history of 7,000 years, will be confirmed in the future as they have been in the past. Let us then open our eyes, for it is high time that we awake from sleep. The enemy stands before us in full power, and it seems to me as if I could hear our Savior repeat the words which he once spake in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was taken prisoner. This is your hour and the power of darkness. We enter into a new year. With its thousands of highways and byways, paths and roads, it lies before us. Oh, let each one ask himself in earnestness and sincerity today at this holy hour, whither goest thou? There is only one sure way that leads to the Father, and that is the way which Jesus and his representative on earth, the church, teach us. Are we really still in the right path, or have we also already left it? Have we perhaps allowed them to lead us astray by that falsehood which has drawn so many from the right path, namely that the war which progress has declared against darkness, as it's called, is not directed against Christianity and its founder, but against the so-called church? Many a human heart is empty and desolate and icy cold, and in many a home the beacon of hope has gone out. Why, my dear friends? Let us be candid, and do not let us put the blame too much on the world and on other people, but let us beat our own breasts and give a true and sincere answer to the question, Whither goest thou? For years you've lived happily with wife and child. The bread which you have had to earn, though by hard labor, you've eaten in the evening in blissful contentment in your family circle. But you have changed. You find too much constraint in your home, and your own are a burden to you. You're looking for distraction outside, and sullenly and with curses on your lips, you go to your work. What has happened to cause this change? Be sincere. Have you not deserted your master and his way? Have you not fought shy of your 
church and your prayers? Do you not pursue other ways now? Stop. Do not let the year glide into the sea of eternity without asking yourself honestly, Whither goest thou? And tremble, for the end for you may lead to destruction. And you, sons and daughters, once you were good children and the joy of your parents, but it is otherwise now. Look, you're afraid of a glance from your father's eye, and you're cold towards your mother, and their teachings you call old-fashioned. In the faces of your parents there are lines of deep sorrow. And what has caused all this? Be sincere. You have left your master and his way. You neglect your church and your prayers, for you go quite another way. Bad books, which you know well how to procure, wanton speech, and loose principles in which you've indulged, have kindled the passions which were slumbering in your breast into a blazing flame. Ah, whither goest thou? The new year is coming also for you. Do not begin it in the same way. Return to the right path which your parents have shown you and which you used to follow with a clean heart and peaceful conscience, so blithe and happy. Follow your master and your mother, Holy Church. God's forbearance offers you another year. Will you again be indifferent to this boundless love? Ah, lift up your eyes. Take the bandage from them. See, there is a cemetery, and they are digging a new grave. Perhaps they're digging it for you. My dear friends, if we are to have peace and gladness in our hearts, in our families, yea, in the whole human society, there's only one sure way, since the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, which leads to this happiness, to peace, and finally to the Father. It is the way about which, my dear people, I have preached to you today, and which I will name to you once more with all the strength of my soul, the way which thou, O Jesus, hast taught us and thy church. Let us all together enter upon this way with manly determination. Let us raise our right hand for the solemn oath that indeed we will do it in all sincerity. Upon this ground we will await thee, O new year, and with courage look forward to all that God in his eternal wisdom may determine upon for us. Amen. The Sermon for New Year's Day The Circumcision of Our Lord The Transitory and the Eternal But thou art always the selfsame, and thy years shall not fail. There are days and hours when man's views become broader and deeper, when he looks out over the narrow confines of this temporal life into eternity. There are days and hours when man is involuntarily urged, more than usually, to weigh himself and those belonging to him in the scales of eternity. New Year's Day is a day of this kind. The New Year reminds us so vividly of the change and the instability of all earthly things, and of our own frailty. The new year tells us that we have taken another long stride toward eternity. The new year recalls to our mind these two words so full of meaning, transitory, eternal. We will consider these two words today by answering the following two questions. 
what is transitory, what is not transitory. Nothing on this earth is permanent and lasting. There is perpetual coming and going, a continual appearing and disappearing. The life of an individual, as well as that of all mankind, is like the sea, where the waves rise up to disappear in a short while altogether. Where it is one moment still, and the next stormy, it flows hither and thither in ceaseless motion. Where are all the myriads of human beings since the time of Adam? They passed away, like shadows on the wall, their bodies to the earth, their souls into eternity. Where are all the great and glorious deeds which they once performed with their power and art? They've disappeared, fallen into decay, and if anything still remains, it is but ruins. Where are the mighty and the rich who made such a display of their power? Their names are still to be found in the pages of history, but they themselves have passed away. And how uncertain is everything which man possesses? If you're wealthy, happy, and well, do not rely upon this too much. For behold, riches, happiness, and health are like a ball. It requires only the least touch to set the ball rolling, and then your wealth, your happiness, and your health are gone. Some people prosper, and others again fail. We have a proof of this in the history of every family. If you're honored and respected, do not on that account be proud. It can easily happen to you as it did to the Savior, to whom one day they cried, Hosanna, and another day, Crucify him. Honor, respect, and man's favor are like a mirror of crystal. The least breath and the mirror is dimmed, and so it is with everything that man possesses. Riches, happiness, health, honor, reputation, everything is perishable and subject to continual change and it is the same with everything that man enjoys. After joy comes sorrow. The chimes of rejoicing are intermingled with the sounds of the death knell. How often can joy be compared to a rose? The leaves fall, and only the thorns remain. Happiness departs, and what remains is very often sorrow and a bitter repentance. And if what we possess and enjoy is perishable, is it any different with ourselves? Are we not all of us on the way to the grave? Some go quicker, others slower, but each one is on his way to the grave. This is the great pilgrimage of nations, the path of man from the cradle to the grave. Everything, my dear brethren, is transitory. Man and what he has and what he is. This transitoriness has, however, its consoling as well as its thrilling aspect, inasmuch as not only do the agreeable and the good pass away, but also all unpleasantness and suffering. The year just departing brought to many people not joy alone, but a great deal of suffering. But with the good days, the bad days passed over too. The trouble is overcome. Tears which flowed have been dried again. And if perhaps some of us have to take our old troubles with us into the new year, let that not discourage us. Someday even the greatest sorrow will have to end when the new year of eternity dawns for us. Yes, dear Christians, in the beyond all tears will be wiped away and our sorrow will be changed into joy. All sorrow? Is that true? 
Unfortunately not, for many people are so foolish as not to bear their troubles with patience and resignation to the will of God. These people make their troubles doubly heavy and bear them in vain. The great consolation for us is that amongst those things which are transitory, sin, which is of the greatest of all evils, will pass away too. We have indeed a Redeemer who takes away the sins of the world. We have a Redeemer who has left in His church the power to forgive sins. Only we must not forget that only the truly repented of, confessed and absolved sins pass away. The others are carried from one year to another by the unrepentant, and from time into eternity. And now, dearly beloved, the second question, what is it then that does not perish? He does not pass away of whom the psalmist says, but thou art always the selfsame, and thy years shall not fail. God does not perish. The eternal, the never-ending, who alone is worthy of our love. It is He whom we must serve during the coming year. Though the years pass away, God remains always the same. He who has been the ruler of the past will be the guide of the future. His hand, which has enriched us with so many benefits in the past, will not be closed to us this year. His love, which He has lavished upon us in the past, He will not deprive us of in the future. His blessing, to which we owe the success of our undertakings, will still flow down upon us. Therefore, we ought to serve God in the coming year and at all times, because if all earthly things perish, God remains, who is our eternal reward. God is truth. Truth is as imperishable as God himself. I am the truth, says Christ. Human opinions change. All lying and deceit in this world are brought to naught and all the knowledge of the learned disappears. My words, however, will not pass away. Let this divine truth be our rule of conduct for the coming year in all our actions. The divine truth which was deposited in His holy church by Jesus Christ. Let it be our compass to guide the little ship of our life on the sea of the future. And as God is truthful, so let us be truthful. Let us detest lies, deceit, and falsehood. Let us be upright and honorable. How much quarreling and contention, how much suffering and bitterness would men spare each other if they were only upright, honorable, and sincere toward one another? Let us therefore be truthful like our Lord and Master. Truth alone is durable. Imperishable also is the image of God, our souls. No, our souls will never die. Have we in the years that are past known and considered this truth sufficiently? If we had, we should certainly have acted differently. We should have taken more and better care of our souls. We should not have dishonored our immortal souls by making them the servants of our perishable bodies, of our sensual natures. We should then have asked ourselves this question of our divine Savior by all our actions. What doth it profit thee to gain the whole world, if thereby thou sufferest the loss of thy own soul? We will continue with the sermon for New Year's Day on side B of this tape.
continue now with the sermon for New Year's Day from the Curé of Ars on the subject of what is transitory and what is eternal. If we perhaps have up to the present forgotten, more or less, the immortality of our souls and have thereby neglected to care for them, today we will make this our rule of life for the coming year and for all the future time. Before performing any actions, I will always ask myself, will this be useful for, or will it injure my soul, my imperishable, immortal soul? If we do this, dear Christians, our works will not perish, for then our works will be good. Good works will last for all eternity. A great many are pleased when at the end of the year they can look back and see that by economy they've been able to take a step forward. Well, it is certainly a good thing if our cash account on New Year's Eve shows an increase, and we ought to take pleasure in this. Only how few there are who ask themselves at the end of the year, how do things stand with my account up in heaven? Have I, during the past year, laid up anything there at interest or not? In other words, have I done good works and amassed a treasure in and for heaven? If on New Year's Eve you can answer this with a yes, then you may rejoice, because this treasure is worth more than all the gold and silver and bonds of the whole world. If your cash box here on earth is full to overflowing, what can you buy with it at your life's end? Six boards and a very small portion of land, a coffin and a grave. Now you would have obtained all this anyhow, even if you had not had one red cent in your cash box. This world's money has only value and worth as far as the grave. Beyond the grave, there is another standard. There only the good works which you have performed and deposited in the treasury of heaven will have any value. Therefore, we will utilize the time to lay by all the capital we can in heaven, which consists of good works which are imperishable and create for us a happy eternity. My dear Christians, let us begin this new year with the serious thought of what is transitory and what is eternal. We will devote the coming year to that which is eternal. We will never again lose sight of that which is imperishable. Let our beginning, our aim, and our end be God. May His will rule over us during the new year. Lord, not as I will, but as Thou willest. With these words, we will leave our future confidently in the hands of God. In this way, the new year will be rich in blessings for us. It will be a step on the ladder of heaven toward God. And that, it may be this, is my most sincere New Year's wish for you all. Amen. From the Venerable Curé of Ars, the sermon for the Feast of St. Patrick, the glorious virtues of St. Patrick. God is wonderful in his saints. The beauty and adornment of a soul are its virtues, both theological and moral. As in the heavens, star excels star in brilliancy and beauty, so God from time to time raises up in his church mighty saints, and places them, so to speak, aloft on a pinnacle, that the luster of their sanctity and good works 
may shine upon his people in all ages. Such a saint was St. Patrick, the Apostle of Ireland. God gives grace and sanctity to his servants to fulfill the mission for which they are destined. The higher the missionary, the greater the work. In the same proportion is the abundance of grace granted. St. Patrick's mission was to convert the whole nation from paganism to the most exact observances of the gospel. Hence, all the graces of the apostolate in their full plenitude were showered upon the soul of this glorious apostle. Every virtue was his, yet some shone out more conspicuously than others. Of these I shall today point out only a few. His faith and confidence in God, his eminent spirit of prayer, and his spirit of penance. Faith is one of the three theological virtues because it has God and his divine truths as its immediate object. Faith is the foundation of all religion and our salvation. Faith is the beginning of human salvation, the foundation and the root of all justification, without which it is impossible to please God and to come to the fellowship of his Son. This definition of the Council of Trent is based upon the inspired text which is so clear on this point. The gospel says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Go ye into the whole world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. And St. Paul adds, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and is a rewarder to them that seek him. And this is reasonable. How can a traveler reach his goal unless he knows something about it? How, therefore, can the soul find God if it know nothing of God? Faith is most pleasing to the Almighty. By faith, proud man submits his intellect and will to God, and believes and adores what he can neither see nor understand. This, my brethren, is the definition of faith. Faith, writes St. Paul, is the substance of things to be hoped for and the evidence of things that appear not. If I can see or understand a subject, then faith ceases. But submitting my understanding to the infallible authority of God, believing in his unerring word, in divine mysteries, which the human mind cannot conceive, that is paying homage to God and therefore pleasing to Him. This holy faith, so essential for salvation and so pleasing to God, is dearer to every Christian than life itself. When we look round the world and see countless millions living and dying in heresy, schism, and idolatry, we ought constantly thank Providence for being members of the Holy Catholic Church. Now that St. Patrick was a man of faith and lived in faith, I need not at length expound. Born of Christian parents, he drank in the faith with his mother's milk, and it was this faith that he practiced throughout his life and taught, and by which he was able to see the whole isle converted from idolatry to Christendom. 
Confidence in God is another of the prominent virtues in the life of St. Patrick. That those who trust and confide in God receive help is plainly proven both in the Old and the New Testaments. Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee. Turn to me and I will turn to thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Christ himself tells his apostles, Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Amen, amen, I say to you, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto you have not asked anything in my name. Ask and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. These promises sank deeply into the soul of our saint during his studies under the famous masters of the time, and became part, so to speak, of his daily life. Hence we find our saint in all his great and holy works, trusting, hoping, and obtaining all things from God alone. During the six years of his captivity, serving a cruel master and watching his flock in the mountains of Antrim, the holy youth's confidence in God was unshaken. When the voice told him to return to his own country and that the ship was ready, and when he had traveled southward two hundred miles, and the captain refused to take him on board, saying, By no means attempt to come to us. Our saint never doubted God's providence. He soon got his reward, for the captain said to him, Come, we receive thee in good faith. When challenged by the pagan priests and the magicians to a trial of strength in working prodigies, before kings, princes, and vast unbelieving multitudes on the hill of Tara, in royal Meath, on the plain of Adoration in Gavin, on the capital of Connaught, in every other field of his apostolic labors, St. Patrick's faith and confidence in God rose equal to every occasion. The minister of God took up the challenge, and like the prophet of old, Moses, brought shame and confusion among the magicians. The kings and priests, princes and bards with the vast multitude, embraced the gospel of Christ. You all know the miracle he worked at Cullen, where he sent two of his disciples to restore the, to life the son of uh, Elelius. Thus we could continue citing numberless examples of his great confidence in God. This confidence was but a fruit of his prayer. Our saint, perfectly acquainted with the necessary means of salvation, too well knew the efficacy of prayer. He understood the meaning of these words of Christ, Without me you can do nothing. He was aware of the fact that in the supernatural order we cannot conceive a good thought, elicit a good act, nor advance one step toward salvation without the grace of God, which again is only obtained by prayer. Therefore, St. Paul says, Not that we are sufficient to think anything of ourselves, as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to accomplish his good will. He knew the power of prayer. By prayer we can obtain all things from God. God has pledged himself, so to speak. He has promised to hear our prayers. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. 
If you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. Now God cannot deceive nor, like false man, break his word or promise. God is not as man that he change. This virtue of prayer, then, this key to the heart of Jesus, our saint preeminently used. Our saint's preparation for his mission and his whole apostolate was a life of prayer and the most intimate union and familiarity with God. We are told in his life that during the six years of his captivity on the mountains of Antrim, cold, hungry, and half-naked, three hundred times a day and three hundred times by night, on bended knees, he adored God. Here, without a sacrifice or sacrament, our holy youth lived in intimate union with his Maker. When refused, as said before, by the captain to sail with him, prayer obtained for him the privilege. To go into the details of St. Patrick's love and spirit of prayer would be to recite his life, for his whole life was one of prayer. Already before leaving Ireland, our young saint by prayer obtained a high state of perfection. But what must have been his perfection and odor of his sanctity, after more than thirty years spent in the most famous schools and monasteries on the continent, and under masters renowned throughout the church for their learning and sanctity. Let us only say he was eminently fitted to be the apostle of a pagan nation. Having got his mission from the vicar of Christ, who alone has that authority from the Redeemer of the world, our apostle, armed with the power of prayer alone, set out to evangelize the Irish nation, and with what success you all know. This man of God was marvelously favored with heavenly visions and revelations in prayer. Working of miracles was of almost daily occurrence with him. He gave sight to the blind and speech to the dumb, cured all manner of diseases, and raised thirty-three persons from the dead in the name of the Holy Trinity. Now, in addition to his lively faith, his preeminent spirit of prayer, we find his awful austerities. He fully entered into the words of our Redeemer, Unless you shall do penance, you shall all likewise perish. Or the words, the other words, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Continually, the words of the Baptist were ringing in his ears, Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He saw the example of the unspotted Lamb of God fasting forty days and forty nights. He knew that as St. Paul had said, I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps when I have preached to others I find myself should become a castaway. All this clearly proved to him that the virtue of penance is as essential for the salvation of the sinner as the waters of baptism for the newly born babe, or, as an ancient father writes, either penance or hell's fire. Now St. Patrick's whole life, from his captivity to the hour of his death, was one constant practice of the most heroic penance, self-denial, and awful austerities. On the snowy mountains of Antrim, day and night, he bore with patience and resignation to God's holy will, cold, hunger, and nakedness. 
Here he began to chastise his body, to crucify his flesh, to rid it of vices and concupiscences. The famed monastery of Marmentier, founded by St. Martin of Tours, where our young Levite spent some years, he put away all earthly cares and pleasures and resolved never more to eat meat. At Larens, the most renowned school of the age for learning and piety, Patrick was the wonder of the masters and pupils for his rigid and austere life. We cannot follow our saints step by step, nor year by year. Carefully handed down tradition tells of the austerity of his life during his mission for the conversion of the Irish nation. Before attacking the great strongholds and centers of paganism, he spent days and nights in prayer and penance. Armed with the Spirit of God and confident of success, he assailed the enemy. Barrier after barrier fell at his touch, and with an easy rush, he planted the cross over the ruins of idolatry. The day he spent among them preaching and baptizing, the night communing with his God. The night he usually divided into three parts. During the first part, he recited 100 psalms, making at the same time 200 genuflections. During the second part, he recited 50 psalms, immersed in icy cold water, with his hands, his eyes and heart lifted up to God. Then he took some hours of repose with a rock or bare ground for his bed, a stone for his pillow, and a rough hair cloth for his covering. On the mountain Croag, ever revered by his people, our apostle spent the forty days of Lent in prayer and penance. To some minds, profane and inclined to indulge in a smile at great spiritual things of which they know nothing, all this may appear extraordinary, if not incredible. Yes, it is extraordinary, but quite credible. Remember the words of my text, God is wonderful in his saints and nothing is more natural and in keeping with God's ways to men than to expect and to find awful austerities, as well as singular miracles in the life of so great a saint and apostle as our glorious and beloved St. Patrick. Now what conclusion are we to draw from all this? Let us praise, bless, and thank God for having so favored an illustrious saint. Let us venerate St. Patrick for the noble virtues he practiced by trying to imitate him. Above all, let us never waver in our holy faith, but like our saint, hold on to the teachings of Holy Mother Church, especially the Holy Trinity, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his divinity, which in our days is so much assailed, though it is the most consoling article of holy faith. Put all your trust in God. Cast your troubles on his shoulders, and you will be relieved. If God be for us, who is against us? Come to me, all you that labor and are heavily laden, and I will refresh you. Follow likewise in the footsteps of our saint as regards the spirit of prayer and penance. I will not ask of you to practice it as preeminently as our apostle did, but do not allow a day to pass without having lifted up your mind and heart to God in prayer. Attend the holy sacrifice of Mass, at least on Sundays and holy days of obligation, 
unite yourselves from time to time in the most intimate manner with your God in holy communion. Bear patiently the trials of life, especially those of your state of life to which you've been called. Perform the slight penances Holy Mother Church may enjoin upon you, thus imitating at a distance at least our saint, who seeing your good will will intercede for you at the throne of the Almighty, that you be not lost, but saved for eternity. A blessing that I wish you all. Amen. The Sermon from the Curie of Ours for the Feast of the Ascension Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, because your reward is very great in heaven. With these consoling words, dear brethren, Jesus Christ encourages his apostles to undertake with fortitude the sufferings and persecutions which were before them. Yes, my children, this loving Father says to them, you will be the object of the contempt and hatred of the wicked. You will fall a victim to their rage. The people will hate you and bring you before the princes of the earth so that you may be condemned to the most dreadful chastisements, to the most cruel and ignominious of deaths. But be not discouraged, rather rejoice, for a great recompense awaits you in heaven. All oh, beautiful heaven, who would not love thee, for thou dost contain so many sublime things? In fact, dear brethren, is it not this thought which makes the apostles untiring in their apostolical labors, unconquerable in the persecutions which they experience from their enemies? Animated by the thought of this beautiful heaven, did not the martyrs stand before their executioners with a courage that surprised those tyrants? Was it not the sight of heaven that quenched the heat of the flames which were prepared to consume them, and that blunted the edge of the sword with which they were struck? Oh, how happy they felt to sacrifice their lives, their possessions for God, in the hope that they would enter into a better life which shall never end. O oh, blessed inhabitants of the heavenly city, how many tears have you shed? How many sufferings have you endured to obtain possession of your God? They cry out from the height of their glorious thrones upon which they're seated to us here below, Oh, how vastly God has rewarded us for the little good which we have done. Yes, we behold him, this tender, loving Father. Yes, we praise him, this most amiable Savior. Yes, we thank Him, this loving Redeemer, throughout all eternity. O oh, blessed eternity, they exclaim, what sweetness and joys Thou dost give us to taste. Beautiful heaven, when shall we behold Thee? O oh, happy moment, when wilt Thou arrive? Without doubt, dear brethren, we all long and pray for such a great good so that you may long all the more ardently after it, I will show you as far as lies in my power the happiness which surrounds the saints and the path which we must take to obtain this happiness. First of all, the ecstasy of love which takes possession of the hearts of the elect is produced by the sight of the beauty which they experience in the presence of God. No matter how beautiful and charming an object may appear to us in this world, 
our mind becomes fatigued after a few moments of enjoyment and we turn away from it. We pass from one thing to another without being satisfied. But in heaven, it's different. Rather must God grant us his strength that we may be able to stand the splendor of his beauty and the tender and charming objects which present themselves to our gaze uninterruptedly. A delight which steeps the souls of the elect into such an abyss of sweetness and love. O blessed abode, O lasting happiness, who among us will enjoy thee? Secondly, I say, we shall continually perceive the angels who glorify the magnitude, the rapture, and the everlasting duration of these joys by their hymns of praise. No mortal is capable of understanding what the blessed feel at all this. Thirdly, when we enjoy the pleasure in this world, we feel at the same time the apprehension of losing it or that of preserving it. This causes us never to be perfectly contented. In heaven, it's otherwise. We find ourselves in the midst of pleasures and joys, and we're sure that they will neither decrease nor be taken away from us. Fourthly, I say, we will enjoy the great and sweet gratification of receiving re reward for all the tears which we've shed and for all our works of penance performed in this life without one good thought or one good desire being overlooked. Oh, what joy for a Christian who has despised the world who has mortified his body. He will behold the steadfastness with which he resisted every bad thought presented by the devil to sully his imagination. He will remember the earnest preparations before going to confession, his ardent desire to nourish his soul at the altar of God, he will behold how often he impoverished himself to assist his poor and suffering fellow creatures. Oh, my God, oh, my God, he will exclaim every moment, what recompense for such small deeds. But so as to inflame the love and gratitude of the elect, God will erect his cross in the midst of his court and depict to them all the sufferings which he was driven to undergo out of his great love and his desire for our happiness. You can picture to yourself how they will be carried away with love and gratitude, how often during the infinite whole of eternity they will lovingly embrace the cross, remembering that God made use of this cross to procure for them so much bliss. In regard to the happiness of the blessed in heaven, I say that their happiness, their pleasures, their joys, will be in proportion to the sufferings which they endured during this life. If we've had a horror of shameful songs and conversations in heaven, we shall hear the most delightful and entrancing hymns of the angels. If we have been modest in our looks, our eyes will then be occupied with objects whose beauty will accord us continuous rapture without ever feeling the least fatigue. That is to say, we shall be ever discovering fresh beauties, like unto a torrent of love which flows on without ceasing. Our heart, which has sighed and wept in our banishment, will experience such an excessive sweetness that it will be quite enraptured. The Holy Ghost tells us 
that chaste souls resemble a person who lies upon a bed of roses, the perfume of which causes them a continual ecstasy. The saints will be nourished and overwhelmed with chaste and pure pleasures through all eternity. But, you will think, when we're in heaven, we all shall be happy alike. Yes, my friend, but there is still a difference. If the damned are miserable and suffer in proportion to their sins, there is no doubt that the glory of the blessed will be radiant in proportion to the works of penance which they've performed. Nevertheless, it is true that we shall all be very happy and very contented because we shall be able to enjoy so many delights so that there will be nothing left to be desired. O oh, beautiful heaven, O oh, glorious dwelling place, when shall we behold thee? O oh, my God, how much longer wilt thou leave us to languish on this imperfect earth in banishment? Now, my friends, you ask me what you must do to obtain heaven. Very well. Pay attention and you shall hear. You must not be attached to the good things of this life. Instead of thinking only how to amass money and to purchase property, you must take care to purchase a place for yourself in heaven. Instead of working on Sundays, you should keep the day holy by going to the house of God, there to lament your sins and to implore his grace that you may not fall into the same sins again and that he may pardon you. Instead of not allowing your children sufficient time to fulfill their religious duties, you must be the first to set them the good example in word and deed. Instead of being angry at the least loss or at a contradiction, you should remember that as a sinner you have deserved far worse and that God leads you in the surest way toward the goal of your happiness. This, my friend, is what you ought to do in order to reach heaven, but you do not always do it. Do you not envy the blessed inhabitants of the heavenly court? Ah, you will say, how I wish I were there. At least I should be free from all the hardships of this life. But wishing and acting are two different things. If your intention is good, very well. I will tell you what to do. You should, my sister, be more subject to your husband. You should be more complacent toward him. Instead of going about telling what your husband has said or done, you should use that time to ask God to grant you the patience and submission which you owe to your husband. You should ask God to touch his heart and change it. I will tell you what we ought to do to attain heaven. Mothers, pay attention. You should spend more time in attending to your children to instruct and show them what they should do to get to heaven. You should not spend so much time on dress that you may have more to give in alms to draw down the blessing of God upon you. Or you should lay by something so as to be able to pay your debts. You should put aside vanities and your whole life should give a good example. Morning and night prayer should be carefully said. A devout preparation for Holy Communion and the reception of the sacraments should be your chief care. Your conversation should express contempt for everything worldly and an appreciation of the goods of another life. This should be your occupation and your care. If you act otherwise, you will be lost. 
Reflect upon all this today. Tomorrow it'll be too late. Examine yourself in this respect, and then adjust yourself accordingly. Weep over your shortcomings and endeavor to behave better, or you may never get to heaven. What must you do, young people? I will tell you, and I pray you to think it well over. You must not be so solicitous for your body. Let it endure a little more. Do not think so much about your appearance. You should be more submissive to your parents, remembering that after God it is to them you owe your existence, and you should obey them with a cheerful spirit without murmuring. Furthermore, you should be more careful of your words and be modest in your conversations with persons of the opposite sex. This is what God asks of you. If you do this, you will attain heaven. And what do you think of all this, my brother? Toward which side are you inclined? Ah, you say, I would much rather go to heaven because it's so lovely there than to go to hell where such manifold torments have to be endured. But it is no use to strive to get there. I have not the courage. If one mortal sin suffices to damn us, I, who get angry every moment, cannot venture to try. You cannot try. Listen to me for a moment, and I will prove to you as clear as day that it is not so difficult as you imagine, and that it requires less exertion to please God and to save your soul than it does to lead a life of pleasure and to please the world. Dedicate to God the care and the trouble which you take to please the world, and you will find that He does not expect so much from you as the world does. Your worldly pleasures are at best alloyed with sadness and bitterness, and then follows remorse for having partaken of them. Yes, my friends, by observing all these things you will find how much sweeter it is to serve God than to serve the world. It is only too true that if we would only do as much for God as we do for the world, we should all be saints. Let us resolve, then, today, that henceforth we will serve our Lord better than we have done heretofore, so that at the end of our days we may be permitted to partake of the glorious and infinite reward which the Lord has prepared for the faithful. Amen. The Sermon for Children's First Communion Holy Communion, a memorial of the love of Jesus toward us. The bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. In a few moments, dear children, you will perform the most holy act which there is possible upon earth, for then you will receive Jesus, the Son of God, with his divinity and humanity. The act is so great, so beautiful, and above all things so holy, that if it were possible, the angels of God would gladly change places with you today. If your parents and relatives look upon you today with joyful sentiments, and if the participation in your happiness draws tears from their eyes, who can wonder? And if all those present think with a mixture of joy and sadness, first of you and then of themselves, who can be surprised? Years ago, they too stood in your place to do what you are going to do today. Ah, would that they were all today as they were then. 
I too rejoice with you today and wish you every happiness. I have every reason to rejoice, for I cherish the conviction that you will prepare a joyful reception for the Son of God in your souls. You are pure, I hope, and when the Savior comes, he will find a believing, a repentant and humble, a pious heart, a heart in which you have kindled the fire of holy charity. One thought only disturbs me. You are pure and pious now, but will you always remain so? You are happy today, but may you not have to confess later with sighs that this day was the first, but unfortunately also the only happy day of your life. Today you receive communion piously and devoutly, but will you receive communion afterward with such piety and devotion? Oh, may the love of Jesus never become cold within you. In all your future communions, may the Son of God find you as pure and as holy as you are today. Surely, my dear children, Jesus deserves this, and you owe it to him on account of the infinite love which he shows to you and to all of us in this holy mystery. We call it a memorial of love, and it is in fact the work of the greatest and most disinterested love. So that you may never sin against this mystery, never dishonor it, never receive it unworthily, I will show you in what this great love consists which Jesus therein manifests. The most holy sacrament of the altar is a memorial of God's infinite love toward us. To understand this, we must consider what Jesus does and will do for us in this mystery. He is really and truly present in the same with his divinity and humanity. He is present there as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As such, he went to Golgotha 1900 years ago, laden with the heavy cross, there to die and to do penance for the sins of men. And behold, in these days, hundreds of priests at the altars every morning to offer up the same Lamb of God. In Holy Mass, the adorable mystery of the Holy Eucharist is celebrated. There the Son of God ascends from the hands of the priest. There he offers himself perpetually to his heavenly Father. And why does this happen? Out of infinite love. He wishes to make satisfaction for the sins of the world to appease the wrath of God. The world heaps in the most terrible manner sin upon sin, and the Son of God never ceases to appease the wrath of his heavenly Father by the sacrifice of himself. It is this sacrifice which withholds the avenging arm of justice. We have to thank this sacrifice that God does not chastise the sinful world as it deserves. Every day the Son of God, upon innumerable altars, stands as mediator between his Father and miserable mankind. He begs forgiveness for them and offers up his passion and death in satisfaction for their crimes. Therefore, my dear children, reflect upon the great grace that this Lamb of Sacrifice comes to you today, and as often as you approach in the future the table of the Lord, to be your mediator with his heavenly Father, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what the priest says to you, holding the sacred host in his hand, when you're about to receive Holy Communion. Oh, receive it always 
with becoming love, with the most fervent devotion. Pray thus to him, O thou Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon me. In the most holy mystery which you're going to receive, Christ is not only present in the Lamb of God who sacrifices himself for us to wipe out our debt of sin and to appease the wrath of God, but at the same time he dwells perpetually among us as our helper and consoler in all our needs. We will continue with the sermon for the First Holy Communion on tape number three. Please join us. We continue now with the sermons for the feast days of the year, the children's first communion from the venerable cure of ours. In the most holy mystery which you're going to receive, Christ is not only present in the Lamb of God who sacrifices himself for us to wipe out our debt of sin, but at the same time dwells perpetually among us as our helper and consoler. The church is his abode, the tabernacle his throne, and there he abides day and night in the midst of his faithful to receive and to console all those who turn to him in their need. Come unto me, he cries out to us, all you who are sorrowful and heavily laden, I will refresh you. With me you will find rest for your souls. Did ever a prince speak more gently and graciously to his subjects then the Son of God here speaks to the children of men. Thousands of the oppressed have at all times accepted this invitation. In their sufferings and woes they sought out the church. There they threw themselves upon their knees before the altar, full of confidence, and laid their petitions and necessities at the feet of the crucified one. And never did anyone go from thence without being consoled. When a danger menaced the church, the faithful flock to their Jesus in the blessed sacrament. If a plague or pestilence or famine broke out anywhere, the faithful took refuge with the divine Savior. And did these petitions ever remain unheard? Never, my beloved. Go to him too as often as you're in trouble. To whom can you turn with greater certainty when a cross lies heavy upon you? If you have faith, there is no one to whom you can turn with greater confidence than to Jesus in the most blessed sacrament. For behold, here present the Lord of all things. Under the form of bread is that God contained who knows no bounds. Is God's arm not powerful enough to help you? Or is he wanting in love and kindness to wish to aid you? For our sakes he dwells there, not for his sake. Here he hides the riches of his love and mercy to help all those who come to him. It is a great benefit, dear children, for us to have the most holy sacrament always in our midst. We are thereby always near to our God, and God is near to us, to give us consolation and assistance. But the love of Christ goes still farther in this holy mystery, for he is here at the same time as the food for our souls. When anyone is invited to a royal table, what a distinction, what an honor for him. But here it is a question of a table more than royal. Here is the table of God. The Son of God himself has prepared it. He, the King of kings, invites everyone to it. To whom is this invitation extended? 
Does he send it to the castles of emperors and kings, of princes and wealthy people? Does he seek out the great and mighty ones of this earth so as to invite them before the rest of men? Oh, no. No one is shut out from this table. No one is preferred. There the subject kneels beside the prince, the beggar beside the rich man, the laborer and servant beside his master. The most humble is here the greatest. In the world you occupy a small place, perhaps, dear Christian. You have to make ends meet, to worry, to work hard. The world knows and cares as little about you as if you did not belong to their kind. But behold how God honors you. He calls you to his table, and he there gives you the same love, perhaps a far greater love, than he does to the rich and well-to-do. And the food which God offers us at this table is no perishable bread, but the bread of angels, the heavenly manna, the heavenly bread of the faithful. It is the most sacred body and blood of Jesus Christ. The bread that I shall give you, says the Savior, is my flesh for the life of the world. Take and eat, for this is my body. This is the food which nourishes our souls to everlasting life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he has eternal life, and I shall raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. These are our Savior's own words. When therefore the priest gives the sacred host to the communicant, he says, The body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul unto life everlasting. But Jesus Christ gives us not only his human nature, his human body is food, he also brings us his divinity. He who eateth me, he says, he will live in me. Dear Christians, what a miracle, what love! The Son of God, almighty and infinite, who bears the whole world in his hand, and whom the host of angels and saints reverently adore day and night. He deigns to become our food at this wonderful table. He visits us in our unworthy souls. He consecrates us as his temple, as his dwelling. Christians, how stupendous and wonderful is this love. To bear our God within us, to unite our unworthy flesh and blood with his most sacred flesh and blood, how great is this grace! Language has no words in which to express satisfactorily this miracle of divine love. What heart does not feel the most profound reverence and adoration? What head does not bow down humbly into the dust of the earth? What eye is tearless when we are about to approach the table of the Lord? And when the priest stands before the altar, holding the sublime body of Jesus Christ in his hand, saying these words to us, Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. Who is not strongly affected then? Who does not strike the sinful breast, saying, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter into my sinful soul? This is enough, my beloved. He who believes in Jesus here and does not burn with love is as hard as stone and rock. I have shown you what Jesus is and what he does for us in the most holy Eucharist. He is here the Lamb of God who sacrifices himself for our sins. He is here our constant helper and consoler in all our necessities.
He is here the heavenly manna, which strengthens and refreshes our souls. And if we consider all this, we ought to, we shall exclaim, Here indeed is the throne of grace. Here is manifested the greatest, the purest, the infinite love of God towards us. And yet you will admire this love still more when I draw your attention to one thing, namely, to the great condescension, yes, even humiliation, of the Son of God in the Holy Eucharist. The love of a man always appears the more beautiful, the greater the sacrifice which is combined with it. If you endure hunger yourself so as to appease that of another, your love is greater and nobler than if you had given him of your abundance. Now look at the Holy Eucharist. Our God is there. But where is his splendor, his majesty and glory? As at the Incarnation, here also he strips himself of his heavenly splendor. Yes, his humbleness is far greater than then. Oh, look and marvel. He forsakes the glory of heaven and hides himself under the form of bread in the form of a little host. Love urges him to do this. He does it only that he may unite himself to us. He does it that no one may be frightened away from his holy table by the splendor of his divinity. Here he foregoes his own honor and glory that he may save us sinful men and make us happy. And what does he expect in return from men? Do we acknowledge his love and reward it with gratitude? We should think so, but it is not so in fact. Here, where he manifests the greatest love, here he receives the greatest abuse, the blackest ingratitude. Just consider the behavior which men showed toward him, how they dishonor and abuse him. During the holy sacrifice of the Mass, he offers himself up for our sins to the Father, and he implores his grace and mercy. And what do men do? Many do not think it worthwhile to attend this act, even if they easily can. Others attend, but without thinking what is here done for them. Others even misbehave during the same, laugh and talk and occupy themselves with other things. Others go so far as to calumniate and ridicule it and to call it a cursed idolatry. Who does not shudder at this? Our blessed Savior experiences all this in his work of love, and still he is not prevented by such irreverences from continuing the same so as to appease the wrath of God. The Son of God dwells in the tabernacle to be near us in all our necessities, to be the helper of all the oppressed. But what do men do? They have so little confidence in him that they would rather bear their trouble and their misery for years or lie bound by their passions than that they would fall on their knees before their Savior and pour out their hearts to him in all humbleness and devotion. And what do those do who are consoled and delivered, perhaps without knowing from whence the help came? Instead of being grateful to him, they begin to get bolder and to grieve him by their sins. And thus is the Son of God misunderstood and sneered at, and yet he never ceases to dwell among us and to prove his love for us. And his love goes so far that he even receives his betrayers and enemies with outstretched arms when at last they come to him. In the Holy Eucharist, Jesus desires to nourish our souls 
with his most sacred flesh and blood. And what is the reward for such love? Undoubtedly, there are many pious Christians who prepare a pure and beautiful dwelling in their hearts for the Savior and prepare him thereby a, a great joy. But, and this is awful, many do violence to the Son of God and compel him to enter into an unworthy soul, into a soul without devotion, into a soul without love, into a soul without contrition and humility, into a soul still steeped in the filth of sin, into a soul more like a filthy, foul sewer than a temple of God. I say they do violence to him, or is it no violence when they dare to approach the altar in such a condition, when they let the priest hand them the sacred host, which they receive in their wicked souls, and thus oblige the most holy to enter into this defilement of sin and to dwell there? It is dreadful, and yet the Son of God ceases not to dwell in the blessed sacrament in spite of all these insults, so as to impart eternal life to pious souls. See, my dear children, thus far does the love of Jesus Christ extend to us poor sinners. Oh, appreciate the same, and never be ungrateful toward it. Today you receive for the first time the pledge of this love, and as I hope and trust, worthily and with consolation for your soul. After this day you will often come to the table of the Lord, so I hope and pray, receive this holy sacrament always as you do today. May all the communions of your whole life be like unto your communion today, and so may be also your last. As your heart is today so full of faith and love, so full of humility and confidence, preserve it so until your deathbed. Promise this to me, promise it to your God and that this promise may be kept ever sacred and faithfully, you will renew publicly and solemnly the holy vows which you made to God at your baptism. Answer these questions before God and the assembled congregation. A renewal of the baptismal vows. You have now made your vows and promises. God grant you the grace to remain faithful to them. The blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost may descend upon you and remain always with you. Amen. Dear children, you now hold Jesus within your hearts. The greatest honor which can be conferred upon man has been shown to you. Now prove yourselves worthy of this great grace. Let your thoughts enter the chamber of your heart to pass a few moments at least with the exalted guest who has come to visit you that you may converse with him undisturbed. Offer up a devout thanksgiving. Recommend yourself to his protection and carry to him with confidence all the desires and needs of your heart. Do not leave the church without giving him once more the sacred promise that you will reward his infinite love with a sincere and lasting love in return. Promise him sacredly and firmly that you will never desecrate by sin your heart, which is his abode, that you will never alienate your soul from him. Go forth in life with the firm resolution always to remain as pure as you are today, and rather to die than to offend him by a mortal sin. And that you may never falter in this resolution, approach the altar frequently 
to receive the bread of angels, the heavenly food of your souls. Happy are you if the bond of love and friendship between you and your Savior never ceases in this life. You will then be happy in this life, and still greater will be your happiness and your joy in the life beyond. I will take leave of you in the beautiful words of St. John, Be faithful unto death, and God will give you the crown of eternal life. Amen. From the Curé of Ars, two Jubilee Sermons. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The above words are applicable to all those days on which the sources of grace of Holy Church flow more abundantly than ordinarily, as, for instance, to great feasts, to missions, during the forty hours' devotion. But they are especially applicable to the time of a jubilee, which offers to us the most excellent of all graces which Holy Church places at the disposal of zealous and penitent Christians. For in the indulgences of the jubilee we venerate according to the opinion of the theologians the culmination of divine mercy, the accomplishment of the work of our justification, the completion and fulfillment of our repentance, the all-embracing efficacy of the most precious blood of Jesus Christ, whereby, upon fulfillment of the prescribed conditions, the last barrier is removed which would prevent our entrance into heaven. The Jubilee indulgence has its origin in the Jubilee year of the old law, which was celebrated by divine command every fifty years. It was a year of grace for Israel. Then the earth rested. The Israelite enjoyed the gifts of creation, such as did not require manual labor. The slaves were set free. The property forfeited by debt and poverty was restored to its former owner. All debts were remitted, for it is the year of Jubilee. The Jubilee year aroused great joy in Israel. It had, however, like so many other institutions of the old law, a deep, mysterious meaning. The general immunity from incurred disadvantages and punishments typified the far greater blessings of the remission of the punishment due to sin in the new law. Our jubilee brings deliverance from the fetters of the soul, removes its guilt and punishment, and restores to it the full possession of divine grace. The Christian year of jubilee has been celebrated for more than 400 years at intervals of 25 years, and is called the Holy Year or the Great Jubilee. With particular solemnity, however, has the Jubilee been celebrated at the beginning of a new century, as the records show, for the last six hundred, if not more, years. In order that we may perfectly understand the meaning of the Jubilee, and that we may better appreciate its manifold blessings and benefits, I shall endeavor to explain fully to you what does the Jubilee grant us, and what does the Jubilee require of us. What does the Jubilee grant us? The Jubilee is an extraordinary indulgence which the Pope grants to the faithful under the obligation of performing certain works of piety. And during the time appointed for the Jubilee, particular authority is granted to confessors to remit certain sins and ecclesiastical punishments 
and to release certain vows. What is an indulgence? By indulgence we understand, according to the teaching of the church in general, a remission of the temporal punishment due to sin, which after the sin itself has been forgiven is still due to be accounted for here or in purgatory. We're speaking here of two entirely different things, of sin and of the punishment for sin. Every sin, venial as well as mortal, leaves, according to Catholic doctrine, a twofold stain upon the soul, a stain of guilt and the stain of punishableness. In mortal sin, the state of guilt consists in the complete turning away of the soul from God, in an entire rupture from an enmity with God. The mortal offense tears asunder the intimate bond of love and friendship which unites the soul to God by sanctifying grace. This results in punishment by eternal rejection, eternal death, or damnation. The guilt of venial sin is not a complete turning away from God, for this sin does not deprive us of sanctifying grace, but it disturbs and troubles the perfect relation of friendship between God and man. It merits, therefore, not eternal, but a temporal punishment, which has to be endured either in this life or in purgatory. In the case of every sin, then, guilt and punishment are essentials. Guilt is the injustice which we do to God. Punishment is the exercise of the right which God has to exact satisfaction from the transgressors of his laws, even after the forgiveness of the guilt. Now, there are two ways by which the temporal punishment of sin can be wiped out. In the first way, we either voluntarily undertake works of penance during our earthly life and make satisfaction founded on the satisfaction of Jesus Christ, or suffer in purgatory after our death. In the other way, the grace of indulgence comes to the assistance of the faithful to deliver them from the temporal punishment due to sins from which they've been purified in the sacrament of penance. Two objections are made to this Catholic doctrine of indulgences. The one is that God never forgives by halves, but that he remits the temporal punishment with the sin. This is not true. As a proof of this, we will take two well-known examples from the Bible. When the refractory people of Israel murmured at Moses and Aaron, and Moses besought the Lord for forgiveness, the Lord said to him, I have forgiven according to thy word. But yet all the men that have seen my majesty and the signs that I have done in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall not see the land for which I swore to their fathers. The other example is this. After King David had grievously sinned by adultery and murder, the prophet Nathan came and abraded him with his crimes by reminding him of the great graces and blessings which God had shown him. David acknowledged and confessed in humility and contrition the enormity of his guilt. And the prophet replied, The Lord hath also taken away thy sin, but announced to him at the same time the temporal punishment which God would inflict upon him for his sins namely, that the son conceived in adultery would die, and that other misfortunes would be visited upon his family. And this actually took place. 
that a temporal punishment remains after the forgiveness of the guilt of sin, also in the new law, is also acquiesced in by the practice of the church in the first centuries, when most severe penances were inflicted upon sinners. But enemies of the church overlooked this entirely, and they advanced the other objection, that as Christ did complete satisfaction, every punishment which God would impose upon sinners would lessen the merits of the sacrifice of the cross. That is, as much as to say that Christ had taken away all obligation from us to do penance for our sins according to our own ability. But there is not a word to this effect to be found anywhere in Holy Writ. We do read, however, that Christ, by his example, urges us to walk in his footsteps and to unite our penances with his. Would Christ have been a true Savior to us if he had not, by his humility, imposed upon us the obligation to be humble, by his poverty to strip our hearts of all desire for earthly goods, and by his mortified life incite us to mortification and penance? If he is our Savior and the head of those he redeemed, then we, the members of his mystical body, must be one with our head. This is what St. Paul understood when he declared that he would fill up those things that were wanting of the sufferings of Christ in his flesh for Christ's body, which is the church. And the same great apostle chastised his body, considering himself unworthy to bear the name of an apostle, because formerly he had persecuted the community of God. And he led a life of penance to make satisfaction for the sins of his early life long ago forgiven. Did he do this from motives of pride or of vanity, or because it pleased him more to do penance than to believe that Christ had left no obligation upon sinners to make satisfaction? Is it not foolishness to declare that it is only vanity for Catholic Christians to awaken sincere contrition, confess their most secret and debasing sins, mortify their flesh, fast, weep, pray, and give alms to obtain from God the forgiveness of their sins and remission of the punishment? No one performs such severe practices from sheer vanity, but they are done from a feeling of duty. And when we practice works of atonement according to Catholic teaching, we do not for one moment believe that they alone will obtain the remission of temporal punishment, but through the power of and in connection with the satisfaction of Christ, who is the true vine, from whom alone we receive the grace to live and to act so as to please God. If then, whatever we do in respect to satisfaction is really united with the satisfaction of Christ and essentially connected with it, how then is it possible that the satisfaction of Christians should lessen the merits of Christ or bring them into contempt? The grace of indulgences, therefore, comes to the assistance of the zealous faithful, aids them in rendering satisfaction, makes reparation for the temporal punishment still to be expiated, and removes the last obstacle which bars the faithful from entering into heaven. Now in what way does the repentant Christian acquire assistance in the satisfaction which he should render himself? Whence comes this reparation? Whence come indulgences? 
where is their source? Indulgences are obtained from the boundless and superabundant satisfaction of Christ and the saints. Christ could work a boundless satisfaction by one drop of his blood in consequence of the infinite merits of any and each of his actions. But in reality, he shed all his blood for our salvation. This fact could not increase the already infinite merits of the least of his sufferings. It at least induced God to apply the merits of Christ more abundantly to us. Moreover, Mary and the saints, as well as the holy martyrs, by the power of the merits of Christ, gained far more merits than necessary for their own sanctification and blessedness. This wealth of satisfaction is now the resource of the church, which Jesus Christ left her as an inheritance, so that out of the superabundance of merits, those who upon earth stand in need of the assistance might profit of the merits of others. Now if we ask how the merits of others can be a source of benefit to ourselves and even become indeed our own satisfactions, we have the answer in the doctrine of the power of the keys in Holy Church and of her disposition of the merits of Jesus Christ and the saints. The Council of Trent expresses itself very clearly upon this point. As the power to grant indulgences were granted by Christ to the Church, and she has used this power given to her by God from the earliest times. Therefore, the Holy Council of the Church teaches and commands that the use of indulgences, which is very salutary for Christian people and approved by the Holy Councils, should be retained in the Church, and lays the anathema upon those who declare that indulgences are unnecessary or who deny that the Church has the power to apply them. This power of the church is repeatedly confirmed in Holy Scripture. For instance, Christ said to St. Peter, and Peter lives on in the popes, Whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. As therefore the divine Savior excludes nothing from this faculty, as a matter of fact, the power of binding and loosing in the church extends over everything unless removed from her jurisdiction, either by the nature of the matter or by special command of Jesus Christ. But no such restriction applies to the remission of temporal punishment. Christ further says, And to thee will I give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That means the power to remove the last obstacles which prevent us from entering into heaven. The last obstacles are the temporal punishments, and on this authority indulgences have been granted until this day. Indeed, if the divine Savior gave to his church the far greater power of remitting eternal punishments, why then should he have withheld from her the lesser power of remitting temporal punishments? The spiritual merits of others are only applicable to ourselves because we, as members, are in communion with Christ, the head, with the saints in heaven, and with the faithful on earth, as long as we remain in the state of sanctifying grace. The good works of Christ and of the saints are profitable for us because, as in a living body, all the members, 
through sanctifying grace, are filled with strength and life. If then the church makes use of the boundless treasures which she possesses in the merits of Christ and the saints, if she applies the merits of others to some or to all the faithful, and allows them to make use of these merits, will not God be satisfied in this way, although the satisfaction is not performed personally by the one who really ought to do it? God acts like a creditor who is satisfied if a third party pays instead of the debtor himself or performs the work the latter should do. Surely it is a great mercy and grace on the part of God that he should accept such a satisfaction by proxy. Has he not accepted the passion of his only begotten Son and continually accepts it for the remission of sins committed by us? That is the fundamental dogma of the Catholic Church. If we did not accept any satisfaction by way of substitution, how could Christ have redeemed us? God has desired to glorify those who by sanctifying grace and holiness of life are living in union with Christ by accepting their satisfactions as a substitute for that of their weaker brethren. Through the grace of indulgences, our own weakness is supported and makes amends for the temporal punishment for all punishments, if the indulgence is a plenary one, for a part only when it is only a partial one. In this way have indulgences always been used. The church has granted them, the faithful have endeavored to profit by them, and everywhere the indulgences have borne abundant fruits of penance, remarkable conversions, growth in holiness, increase of faith and charity, and so on. Indulgences bring people to confession, attract them like a heavenly magnet, and are to many eternal salvation. While the indulgence of the Jubilee is in its essentials not different from any plenary indulgence, still there exists a difference on account of certain conditions. What is a Jubilee indulgence? The Jubilee indulgence is a plenary indulgence distinguished by a great solemnity, a great power, a great authority. The Jubilee indulgence is surrounded with great solemnity, for it not only extends to a congregation, a diocese, a country, a certain part of the world, but it extends over the whole earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the rays of its grace extend. Moreover, the ceremonies with which it is announced are calculated to give it great authority. From the throne whereon God himself has placed him, the Pope raises his voice as shepherd, addresses himself to the whole world, to the bishops, priests, and faithful. The proclamation of the graces of indulgences sets the whole of Christendom in joyous agitation. After hearing the voice of the Pope, their shepherd, Christians say, Behold, now is the acceptable time, now is the day of salvation. And those who are not of the number of the zealous Christians, will they not be carried away by the extraordinary celebrations which will take place even in the smallest communities, solemnities which, on account of their rarity, make all the greater impression. The Jubilee indulgence is a great power in itself. This power consists of the prerogatives and particular authority which are granted exclusively during the time of the Jubilee. Authority to absolve from certain reserved sins, authority to liberate from ecclesiastical punishments, authority to release certain vows. 
with this authority, not only a few, but all confessors are provided so that if we faithfully fulfill the obligations, we may receive this greatest treasure with but little difficulty. The Jubilee indulgence enjoys the greatest authenticity, particularly the Jubilee which takes place at the change of the century, the history of which reaches back as far as the 13th, according to some historians, even as far as the 7th century. Thus the Jubilee indulgence is a most valuable and precious gift. The Jubilee year, a year rich in graces, a year of revival and penance, a year of expiation and grace, called rightly by the church the holy year, a year which prepares a path to the joys of paradise. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. The preceding part of this sermon had for its aim to make clear to us the great value of the graces which we may obtain by means of the Jubilee indulgence. In the Jubilee indulgence we venerate the culmination of divine mercy, the accomplishment of our justification, the perfection of our penance, the ransom that Christ himself paid for us. But at the threshold of the sanctuary, which holds the wonders of divine grace, we are met by the voice of Holy Church. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Whosoever desire to participate in the reception of the graces offered, let them examine themselves, whether they are in the proper condition to receive them. Let us therefore inquire, what does the Jubilee require of us? Holy Church is obliged to speak in this way. She unfolds before the eyes of mankind the whole beauty of divine mercy so as to attract our hearts, but she exacts also purified and devoted hearts. For it is an essential teaching that in the holy work of regeneration, and especially in the accomplishment of sanctification, which the Jubilee indulgence has for purpose, the divine working should be met and sustained by our own exertion and permeate the same. In other words, the great and sublime graces of the Jubilee indulgence must be gained by the faithful on conditions more exacting than would be necessary to obtain ordinary indulgences. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. These words will have to be well considered. Whosoever has any idea of the doctrine of the Catholic Church as regards justification, can never fall into the error of thinking that the offering of a special grace dispenses with due preparation for the same, and that the announcement of a special indulgence and the invitation to partake of the same can, as a consequence, result in a relaxation or even a cessation of penance. It is the purpose of this sermon to prove that the urgent invitation to partake of the benefits of the Jubilee indulgence does not only not interfere with penance, but that in fact there is no greater incentive for penance, and really for most thorough penance than the prospect of the immense benefit offered by the Church by the authority of God, namely a complete remission of the punishments incurred by our sins. The answer then to our question, what does the Jubilee require of us, is, we must be in a state of grace, we must duly perform the prescribed works of penance. 
we must be in a state of sanctifying grace. Next to the earnest intention of partaking of the indulgence, we must be above all things in a state of grace. For St. Thomas says, a dead member of the body cannot derive any good from the other living members. And he who is in a state of mortal sin is like a dead member. Furthermore, since the granting of the indulgence emanates from the authority of the church, it can never be the intention of the church to apply the merits of Jesus Christ and the saints to souls stained with sin. Indulgences are a favor granted to the friends and children of God, certainly not to his enemies. And again, how can the temporal punishment be remitted to those still deserving eternal punishment? As long as the sin itself remains, God does not remit its punishment. It is therefore an indispensable condition either to have preserved the state of grace or to have again obtained the same by penance. We will continue with the sermon on Jubilees on side B of this tape. Please join us. We continue now with sermons for the feast days of the year from the Curé of Ars and the sermon for the Jubilee. What does the Jubilee require of us? We must be in the state of sanctifying grace. However desirable it would be now that all the prescribed works for the Jubilee indulgence be performed in the state of grace, it is nevertheless sufficient if we are in a state of grace at that moment in which we complete the last of these prescribed works, because just at that moment the indulgence is gained. Consequently, there is no Jubilee indulgence for impenitent and obdurate sinners. They too are invited to profit in this time of grace by gaining the indulgence, but the invitation is tendered on the condition that such sinners should repudiate sin and with repentant hearts and reformed minds they may participate in the benefits of divine grace. Mind this well, there can be no jubilee graces for you if God does not perceive the image of his Son in your soul, if he does not see that you are grafted on the true vine, which is Christ, through sanctifying grace, if you cannot say, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It is easily understood, therefore, that corresponding conditions are imposed upon the faithful. Sin must be banished from the soul, because sin and grace can no more dwell together than darkness and light, or death and life. The sincere conversion of the heart to God must cover, without exception, each and every sin that has broken the bond of love with God. These obstacles must be removed by a contrite confession by an earnest and sincere determination to lead a better life. So that our conversion may be real, we must free ourselves from every disorderly inclination and attachment to sin as far as our own will is concerned. I mean that our will must break with sin, must abhor it as the greatest of all evils. St. Bernard calls a conversion where the inclination to sin is not rooted out an abominable deception. St. Augustine teaches the same when he speaks of God's commands to Abraham, Go forth out of thy country and from thy kindred and out of thy father's house 
and come into the land which I shall show thee. In these words, God not only gave Abraham the command to leave his country bodily, which he had already done, but to relinquish all attachment to his former country and to forsake it in his heart, that he might serve as a model to the sinner. Is it not a fact that we are not contented with a friend's gifts if we have not his heart? And so God wants our heart. God opens his paternal arms to us and desires only to see the last barriers fall which prevent our entrance into heaven. But to this end, he requires of us the same that we ask of our friends. Son, give me thy heart. I behold thy tears. I hear thy prayers. I perceive thy good works. But give me thy heart. Avoid the occasion of sin. Give me thy heart. Therefore, in preparation for the gaining of the jubilee indulgence, the first essential condition is the possession of sanctifying grace. The faithful must be purified from every mortal sin and free from every attachment of the heart or will to the same, and this resolution must be proved by the avoidance of occasions leading to sin. Reason demands this. For even in our courts of law, pardon is granted only to repentant and reformed offenders. Religion demands this. For it is written, But if the just man turn himself away from his justice and do iniquity, all his justices which he had done shall not be remembered. We must perform the prescribed works duly and properly. Above all, the one desiring to gain the jubilee indulgence must perform the prescribed works in person, as according to the existing rules, no one can gain an indulgence for another living person. The prescribed works must be performed at the appointed times, as also in a spirit of piety and penance. Otherwise, they would not be in accordance with the intentions which the Pope had in granting the indulgence. As we must strictly conform to the conditions upon which the Church grants the indulgence, not only the voluntary but also the involuntary omission of any of the prescribed conditions, as for instance the inability to fulfill the same or ignorance of the same, would prevent your gaining the indulgence, unless the prescribed works are modified by authority of your confessor. If several good works are prescribed, the order of the same is, as a rule, left to the choice of the performer. But the last one of these works, as already stated, must necessarily be performed in the state of grace. A work which the penitent is already obliged to perform cannot serve for the gaining of this jubilee indulgence, for instance, Easter communion. The works prescribed for gaining the jubilee indulgence are in particular confession and communion. Both these sacraments must be received within the time appointed for the jubilee. Church visits. The churches designated by the bishop must be visited. No one has authority to substitute other churches for those named unless specially authorized by the bishop. Sixty visits altogether must be made. Prayers. The prayer said at each church visit must be offered in the intention of the Holy Father. They must be actually said by moving the lips. Mental prayer is not excluded, but in itself is insufficient. It is considered sufficient to recite in each church visited 
five times the Our Father, Hail Mary, and Glory be to the Father. Sick and feeble persons and others lawfully incapacitated may have changed the visits of churches by their confessor into some other work of piety. This, then, is what the Jubilee requires of us. May you all be expected to gain the Jubilee indulgences. Shall we all participate in the benefits of this holy time of grace? Do you understand now why the Catholic Church institutes Jubilees? Is it not foolish and wicked to say that at the time of a Jubilee it is made easy by a few indifferent acts to receive forgiveness and grace? This is what the enemies of the church claim, because they rejoice at a chance to misrepresent her acts. The church can never do anything to suit them. If she proclaims the forgiveness of sins and the necessity of penitential works, it is said she underestimates the satisfaction of Christ. If she opens the treasury of the expiation of Christ by granting indulgences, it is said that she disturbs the spirit of penance. It may be convenient for impenitent, obdurate sinners to think so, but the great grace of the Jubilee indulgence, decried by our enemies and scoffed at by impenitent sinners, remains nevertheless holy, precious, and propitious, like the golden ray of sunshine falling upon fertile soil. The good Catholic knows and feels that this is an important and holy season of grace, a time for repentance and contrition, for humility and reform, for the love of God and of our fellow men. Can you ever hear more impressive words than those of Christ? The way is steep, the door is narrow. When is it ever required of you more urgently to break with sin and to avoid occasion? When are you more earnestly exhorted to combat your evil passions, urged to peaceful reconciliation, to conjugal fidelity, to the restitution of ill-gotten goods, to make good slander. Thus, a holy zeal should be awakened for penance, contrition, and confession. And the church listens to our sighs. She beholds our tears. She comes to our assistance with this jubilee indulgence. O holy season, how it strengthens our confidence, how it draws men to their merciful God, how light are our hearts which were oppressed with guilt. Do not ask, what can the jubilee indulgence give me after I am made to do all this penance? Oh, you know not how enormous the punishment is that you deserved, and compared with that, how insignificant your merits are, how imperfect your works. Remember that formerly the church imposed most severe penances sometimes lasting for years for one single sin. She certainly possesses the right understanding of our guilt. Remember how the anchorites did penance? Remember St. Peter's tears shed during his whole lifetime? Think of Magdalene's 22 years of penance. Think of the severe penances of the innocent Aloysius. O holy indulgence, O precious gift, of our Holy Mother Church. Thanks. Eternal gratitude. Amen. The sermon from the Venerable Cure of ours for the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary.
the glories of Mary, because he hath regarded the humility of his handmaid. When we behold, dear brethren, how the Blessed Virgin, in her humility, lowered herself beneath all creatures, we behold at the same time that her humility exalted her above everything but God. Not the powers or princes of this earth have raised her to this highest degree of dignity in which it is our happiness to contemplate her today. No, the three persons of the Most Holy Trinity have placed her upon this throne of glory. They have proclaimed her the Queen of heaven and earth and made her the keeper and dispenser of the heavenly treasures. It is safe to say, dear brethren, that we shall never comprehend sufficiently the glories of Mary and the power which Jesus Christ, her divine Son, has given her, that we shall never fully appreciate the ardent desire she has to make us happy. She sees in us her own children. She rejoices in the power to help us which God has given her. Yes, Mary is our great helper. She it is who presents to her divine Son all our prayers, our tears, and our sighs. She it is who obtains the graces for us which we need for our sanctification. The Holy Ghost tells us that amongst all creatures, Mary is a miracle of might, a miracle of sanctity, and a miracle of love. What a happiness for us, dear brethren. What hope for our salvation. Let us strengthen our confidence in this good and tender mother by contemplating the glories of Mary. To attempt to speak of the glories of Mary means, my dear brethren, to lessen the exalted idea which you should have formed thereof. For St. Ambrose tells us that Mary is raised to such a high degree of glory, of honor, and of power, that not even the angels can realize it. It is known to God alone. We may therefore conclude that all that which human creatures might be able to say and to appreciate would be nothing, or nearly nothing, to that which she really is in the sight of God. The highest praise which the church gives her is in the words, Mary is the daughter of the eternal Father, the mother of the redeeming Son of God, and the spouse of the Holy Ghost. When the eternal Father chose Mary to be his daughter, what flow of graces must he not have poured into her soul? She received for herself alone more graces than all the angels and saints together. He began by preserving her from original sin, a grace which was granted to her alone. He fortified her in grace with a perfect security so that she never lost it. Yes, my dear friends, the Heavenly Father encircled her with heavenly gifts in just proportion to the great dignity to which she was to be exalted. He erected in her a living temple of the three persons of the Most Blessed Trinity. Let us say briefly, he did for her everything which it was possible to do for a creature. While the Eternal Father took such care of Mary, we see that the Holy Ghost adorned her soul in such a high degree that already at the moment of her conception she was an object of delight to the three divine persons. Mary had not only the happiness of being the daughter of the Eternal Father, but also that of being the mother of the Son and the spouse of the Holy Ghost. Through this incomparable dignity, 
she now beholds herself made to form the most adorable body of Jesus Christ. God made use of her to overthrow the dominion of the evil spirit and to annihilate it. She was allied to the three divine persons, therefore, to redeem the world by giving it a Savior. Can we ever sufficiently comprehend an abyss of such greatness, power, and love? Next to the adorable body of Jesus Christ, she is the most beautiful ornament of the heavenly court. We may say that the triumph of the Blessed Virgin in heaven is the culmination of the graces of the sublime Queen of heaven and earth. Then she obtained the last jewel of her incomparable dignity as Mother of God. After having been subjected for a time to the miseries of this life and the humiliation of death, she enjoys the most glorious, the most honorable existence which a creature could ever enjoy. We wonder sometimes that Jesus, who loved his mother so dearly, could have left her so long upon earth after his resurrection. The reason is this. He wished in this manner to still increase her glory and wanted her also to aid the apostles who had need of her presence to encourage and guide them. Mary revealed to the apostles the greatest mysteries of the hidden life of Jesus Christ. Mary also elevated the standard of virginity, which made thus known its luster and its beauty, and showed us the magnificent reward reserved for this holy state. Let us, however, dear brethren, follow Mary up to the moment that she left this world. Jesus Christ desired that before she should be taken up to heaven, she should receive once more all the apostles. They were all, with the exception of St. Thomas, brought to her side in the most miraculous manner. With the extraordinary humility which she had always practiced in such a high degree, she kissed their feet and asked for their blessing. Thus she still increased her virtue, her merits, and her reward. Then Mary gave also to the apostles her blessing. It would be impossible for me to describe to you the sorrow of the apostles at the loss which they were about to undergo. Was not the Blessed Virgin, after the Redeemer, their entire happiness, their whole consolation? To alleviate their sorrow, Mary promised them that she would never forget them before her divine Son. It is thought that the same angel who announced to her the mystery of the Incarnation told her also of the hour of her death. The Blessed Virgin is said to have answered to the angel, Oh, what bliss, and how ardently I desire after this moment. After these glad tidings, she desired to make her last will, which was soon done. She had two robes, which she left to the two maidens who had been in her service for a long while. And then, when the hour arrived, she felt herself burning with so great a love that her soul could no longer remain in her body. Oh, blessed moment! Can we, dear brethren, contemplate this death without feeling an ardent desire to live a good life and to die such a holy death? We can certainly not expect to die of love, but we may hope at least to die in the love of God. Mary had no fear of death, for death was to place her in possession of eternal bliss. She knew that heaven was waiting for her and that she was to be one of its choicest ornaments. Her son and the whole celestial court were advancing to meet her. 
the saints of heaven were waiting to conduct her in triumph into their kingdom. Everything in heaven was ready to receive her. She was to enjoy honors which are above everything which we can possibly imagine to ourselves. Before leaving this world, Mary was not subject to any sickness, for she was free from sin. In spite of her advanced age, her body was never emaciated, as is the case with other human beings. It seemed, on the contrary, as the end approached, to be rejuvenated. St. John Damascene tells us that Jesus Christ himself came to call his mother. This beautiful star, which had illumined the world for seventy-two years, was about to disappear. Yes, dear brethren, she beheld her son again, but in an entirely different form than when she saw him all covered with blood nailed upon the cross. O oh, divine love, this is the greatest of thy victories and of thy mercies. Thou couldst do no more, neither couldst thou do less. O oh, blessed death, O oh, death to be desired, O oh, how greatly is she now compensated for all the humiliations and suffering to which her holy soul was subjected in this mortal life. Yes, she beholds her son again, but quite different from that day when in his bitter passion she saw him in the hands of his executioners, carrying his cross, crowned with thorns, without her being able to offer him the least help. Oh no, she beholds him no longer in his great sufferings. She beholds him resplendent with glory, arrayed in the magnificence which composes the joy and the bliss of heaven. She beholds the angels and the saints who surround him, who praise him, glorify and adore him from the bottom of their hearts. Yes, she beholds again this tender Jesus, free from everything which could cause him any suffering. Oh, should we not do everything we possibly can, so as to be able to join the mother and the son in this place of eternal happiness? A few moments of struggling and suffering, and such glorious reward. What a blessed death, my friends. Mary had nothing to fear, because she had always loved her God. She had nothing to mourn, because she had never possessed anything but her God. Do we, too, wish to die without fear? Let us then live like Mary, in innocence. Let us avoid sin, which causes our unhappiness in time and eternity. And should we have been so unfortunate as to commit sin, let us, like St. Peter, lament it until our death, and let our remorse end only with our life. Let us descend into the grave weeping like the holy King David. Let us wash our souls in the bitterness of our tears. Do we wish, like Mary, to die without trouble? Let us then live like her, without attachment to created things. Let us do as she did. Let us love God alone. Let us desire alone Him. Let us seek to please Him only in everything that we do. Happy is that Christian who leaves nothing to gain everything. Thus, let Mary, our beautiful mother, be our guiding star in life and in death. Let us imitate her virtues, her humility, her piety, her charity so that after the few years in this life we may expect to imitate her also in a happy death, to partake of the glory of her divine Son for all eternity.
Amen. We continue now with the instructions on the Catechism from the Blessed Curie of ours, Reverend John Mary Vianney. There is no doubt, says Pierre Gratry, that through purity of heart, innocence, either preserved or recovered by virtue, faith and religion, there are in man capabilities and resources of mind, of body, and of heart, which most people would not suspect. To this order of resources belongs what theology calls infused science, the intellectual virtues which the divine word inspires into our minds when he dwells in us by faith and love. And Pierre Grattray quotes with enthusiasm, excusing himself for not translating them better, these magnificent words of a saint who lived in the 11th century in one of the mystic monasteries on the banks of the Rhine. This is what purifies the eye of the heart and enables it to raise itself to the true light, contempt of worldly cares, mortification of the body, contrition of the heart, abundance of tears, meditation on the admirable essence of God and on his chaste truth, fervent and pure prayer, joy in God, ardent desire of heaven. Embrace all this, adds the saint, and continue in it. Advance towards the light which offers itself to you as to its sons and descends of itself into your hearts. Take your hearts out of your breast and give them to him who speaks to you, and he will fill them with deific splendor, and you will be sons of light and angels of God. The description seems to have been traced from the very life of the curé of ours. Every detail recalls him, every feature harmonizes marvelously with his. Who has ever carried further contempt of worldly cares, mortification of the body, abundance of tears? He was always bathed in tears. And then meditation on the admirable essence of God and on his chaste truth, and fervent and pure prayer, joy in God, ardent desire of heaven. How characteristic is this? He had advanced towards the light, and the light had descended of itself into his heart. He had taken his heart from his breast and given it to him who spoke to him. And he who spoke to him, who is the divine, uncreated word of God, filled him with deific splendor. No one could doubt it uh, who has the happiness of assisting at any of the catechisms of ours, of hearing that extraordinary language, which was like no human language, who has seen the irresistible effect produced upon hearers of all classes by that voice, that emotion, that intuition, that fire, and the signal beauty of that unpolished and almost vulgar French, which was transfigured and penetrated by his holy energy, even to the form, the arrangement, and the harmony of its words and syllables. And yet the curé of ours did not speak words. True eloquence consists in speaking things. He spoke things, and in a most wonderful manner. He poured out his whole soul into the souls of the crowds who listened to him, that he might make them believe, love, and hope like himself. That is the aim and the triumph of evangelical eloquence. How could this man, who had nearly been refused admittance into the great seminary because of his ignorance, and who had, since his promotion to the priesthood, been solely employed in prayer and in the labors of the confessional, how could he have attained to the power of teaching like one of the fathers of the church? 
Whence did he derive his astonishing knowledge of God, of nature, and of the history of the soul? How was it that his thoughts and expressions so often coincided with those of the greatest Christian geniuses, St. Augustine, St. Bernard, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Teresa? For example, we've often heard him say that the heart of the saints was liquid. We were much struck with this energetic expression without suspecting that it was so theologically accurate. And we were surprised and touched to find that in turning over the pages of the Summa that the angelical doctor assigns to love four immediate effects, of which the first is the liquefaction of the heart. The curé had certainly never read St. Thomas, which makes this coincidence the more remarkable. And indeed, it is inexplicable to those that are ignorant of the workings of grace and who do not comprehend these words of the divine master, thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them to the little ones. The Spirit of God had been pleased to engrave on the heart of this holy priest all that he was to know and to teach to others, and it was the more deeply engraved as that heart was the most pure, the more detached, and empty of the vain science of men, like a clean and polished block of marble ready for the tool of the sculptor. The faith of the curé of ours was his whole science. His book was our Lord Jesus Christ. His sought for wisdom nowhere but in Jesus Christ, in his death and in his cross. To him no other wisdom was true, no other wisdom useful. He sought it not amid the dust of libraries, not in the schools of the learned, but in prayer, on his knees, at his master's feet, covering his divine feet with tears and kisses. In the presence of the blessed sacrament, where he passed his days and nights, before the crowd of pilgrims had deprived him of liberty day and night, he had learned it all. When persons have heard him discourse upon heaven, on the sacred humanity of our Lord, on his dolorous passion, his real presence in the most holy sacrament of our altars, on the Blessed Virgin Mary, her attractions and her greatness, on the happiness of the saints, the purity of the angels, the beauty of souls, the dignity of man, on all those subjects which were familiar to him. It often happened to him to come out from the discourse quite convinced that the good Father saw the things of which he had spoken with such fullness of heart with such eloquent emotion, in such passionate accents, with such abundance of tears. And indeed, his words were then impressed with a character of divine tenderness, of sweet gentleness, and of penetrating unction, which was beyond all comparison. There was so extraordinary a majesty, so marvelous a power in his voice, in his gestures, in his looks, in his transfigured countenance, that it was impossible to listen to him and remain cold and unmoved. Views and thoughts imparted by a divine light have quite a different bearing from those acquired by study. Doubt was dispelled from the most rebellious hearts, and the admirable clearness of faith took its place. Before so absolute a certainty, an exposition at once so luminous and so simple. The word of the curé of ours was the more efficacious because he preached with his whole being. His mere presence was a manifestation of the truth, and of him it might well be said 
that he would have moved and convinced men even by his silence. When there appeared in the pulpit that pale, thin, and transparent face, when you heard that shrill, piercing voice like a cry, giving out to the crowd sublime thoughts, clothed in simple and popular language, you fancied yourself in the presence of one of those great characters of the Bible, speaking to men in the language of the prophets. You were already filled with respect and confidence, and disposed to listen, not for enjoyment, but for profit. Before he began, the venerable catechist used to cast a glance over his hearers, which prepared the way for his word. Sometimes this glance became fixed on some one. It seemed to be searching into the depths of some soul which the saint had suddenly seen through, and in which one would have thought he was looking for the text of his discourse. How many have thought he was speaking to them alone? How many have recognized themselves in the picture he drew of their weaknesses? How many have listened to the secret history of their failings, of their temptations, of their combats, of their uneasiness, and of their remorse? To those to whom it was given to assist at these catechisms, two things were equally remarkable, the preacher and the hearer. It was not words that the preacher gave forth, it was more than words. It was a soul, a holy soul, all filled with faith and love that poured itself out before you, of which you felt in your own soul the immediate contact and the warmth. As for the hearer, he was no longer on the earth. He was transported into those pure regions from which dogmas and mysteries descend. As the saint spoke, new and clear views opened to the mind, heaven and earth, the present and the future life, the things of time and of eternity appeared in a light that you had never before perceived. When a man, coming fresh from the world and bringing with him worldly ideas, feelings, and impressions, sat down to listen to this doctrine, it stunned and amazed him. It set so utterly at defiance the world and all that the world believes and loves and extols. At first he was astonished and thunderstruck. Then by degrees he was touched and surprised into weeping like the rest. No eloquence has drawn forth more tears or penetrated deeper into the hearts of men. His words opened a way before them like flames, and the most hardened hearts melted like wax before the fire. They were burning, radiating, triumphant. They did more than charm the mind. They subdued the whole soul and brought it back to God, not by the long and difficult way of argument, but by the paths of emotion which lead shortly and directly to the desired end. Monsieur Vianney was listened to as a new apostle sent by Jesus Christ to his church to renew in her the holiness and fervor of his divine spirit in an age whose corruption has so effaced them from the souls of most men. And it is a great marvel that proposing, like the apostles, a doctrine incomprehensible to human reason and very bitter to the depraved taste of the world, speaking of nothing but crosses, humiliations, poverty, and penance, his doctrine was so well received. Those who had not yet received it into their hearts were glad to feed their minds upon it. If they had not courage to make it the rule of their conduct, they could not help admiring and wishing to follow it.
It is not less remarkable that though he spoke only in the incorrect and common French natural to the people brought up in the country, one might say of him as of the apostles that he was heard by all the nations of the world and that his voice resounded through all the earth. He was the oracle that people went to consult that they might learn to know Jesus Christ. Not only the simple but the learned, not only the fervent but the indifferent, found in a divine unction which penetrated them and made them long to hear it again. The more they heard, the more they wished to hear, and they always came back with love to the foot of that pulpit as to a place where they had found beauty and truth. Nothing more clearly showed that the cure of ours was full of the Spirit of God, who alone is greater than our heart. We may draw from his depths without ever exhausting them, and the divine satisfaction which he gives only excites a greater appetite. The holy cure spoke without any other preparation than his continual union with God. He passed without any interval of delay from the confessional to the pulpit, and yet he showed an impenetrable confidence which sprang from complete and absolute forgetfulness of himself. Besides, no one was tempted to criticize him. People generally criticize those who are not indifferent to their opinion of them. Those who heard the cure of ours had something else to do. They had to pass judgment on themselves. Monsieur Vianney cared nothing for what might be said or thought of him. Of whomsoever his audience might consist, though bishops and other illustrious personages often mingled with the crowd that surrounded his pulpit, he never betrayed the least emotion nor the least embarrassment proceeding from human respect. He who was so timid and so humble was no longer the same person when he passed through the compact mass that filled the church at the hour of catechism. He wore an air of triumph. He carried his head high. His face was lighted up, and his eyes cast brilliant glances. He was asked one day if he'd never been afraid of his audience. No, he answered. On the contrary, the more people there are, the better I'm pleased. Then to impose on us, he added, a proud man always thinks he does well. If he had had the Pope, the Cardinals, and Kings around his pulpit, he would have said neither more nor less, for he thought only of souls, and made them think only of God. This real power of his words supplied in him the want of talent and rhetoric. It gave a singular majesty and an irresistible authority to the most simple things that issued from that venerable mouth. The power of his word was also increased by the high opinion the pilgrims entertained of his sanctity. The first quality of the man called to the perilous honor of instructing the people, says St. Isidore, is to be holy and irreproachable. He whose mission it is to deter others from sin must be a stranger to sin. He whose task it is to lead others to perfection must be in everything their model of perfection. In the holy catechist of ours, virtue was preaching truth. When he spoke of the love of God, of humility, gentleness, patience, mortification, sacrifice, poverty, or the desire of suffering, his example gave immense weight to his words. For a man who practices what he teaches is very powerful in convincing and persuading others. 
He used to put his ideas into the most simple and transparent form, letting them suggest the expression that best suited them. He could bring truths of the highest order within the reach of every intellect. He clothed them in familiar language. His simplicity touched the heart, and his doctrine delighted the mind. That science which was not sought for it is abundant. It flows like the fountain of living water, which the Samaritan woman knew not, and of which the Savior taught her the virtue. Thus, his considerations on sin, on the offense it is against God, and the evil it inflicts on man, were the painful result of his thoughts. They penetrated him. They overwhelmed him. They were like a burning arrow piercing his breast. He relieved his pain by giving utterance to it. It was a wonderful thing that this man, so ready to proclaim his own ignorance, had by nature a great attraction for the higher faculties of the mind. The greatest praise that he could give anyone was to say that he was clever. When the good qualities of any great person, whether an ecclesiastic or a layman, were enumerated before him, he seldom failed to complete the words, What pleases me most is that he is learned. Monsieur Vianney appreciated the gift of eloquence in others. He blessed God, who for his own glory gives such privileges to man, but he disdained them for himself. He had no scruple in utterly neglecting grammar and syntax in his discourses. He seemed to do it on purpose, out of humility, for there were faults in them that he might easily have avoided. But this incorrect language penetrated the souls of his hearers, enlightened and converted them. A polished discourse, says St. Jerome, only gratifies the ears. One which is not so much makes its way to the heart. And thus we conclude this tape regarding the cure of ours and the feast day sermons that he presented to his people. We trust and pray that these tapes have been very helpful and inspiring and interesting for you. Please listen to them often and pray for those who made these tapes available to you. We request your help in letting others know that they can obtain copies of these tapes and others from Patrick Henry, Route 2, Box 957, Safford, Arizona, 85546. That's Patrick Henry, Route 2, Box 957, Safford, S-A-F-F-O-R-D, Safford, Arizona, 85546. Thank you. And may Jesus, Mary, and St. Joseph grant you every grace you need. Instead of the Route 2, Box 957 address, Please send to Patrick Henry, 7067 South Tumbleweed Drive, Safford, Arizona, 85546. Thank you. Jesus, Mary, and St. Joseph reward you.